Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Today, Austin Kopic is joining me in the studio. We're going to be talking about the recent revival of astrological magic um, and some of the just um, not ambiguities, but some of the ambivalence that I've had about that and some possible drawbacks with the revival, as well as some of the history and some of the positive things behind it. Uh, so, hey, Austin, thanks for joining me today. Hey, it's been a while. Yeah, it is day five of our marathon uh, week of doing podcasts with Kelly. Kelly went to Boulder today to do a workshop, which is kind of insane at this point in the week, but <laughs> all, all the more power to her. I mean, we we all, this was originally scheduled as our one day of rest. Right, this was going to be the down day. So. Yeah, but we, uh, I mean, we we also decided to ignore the, uh, the Lord's Day all right, and so, get some work done. So we're a little bit deranged ourselves but we had a topic a topic that i've been kicking around for a while that i've been wanting to talk with somebody about and i actually had a few candidates but you were always the best candidate for this topic which is so as we've seen over the past year or two i would say um suddenly the concept and the practice of astrological magic so not just astrology and not just magic but the blending of astrology and magic has suddenly become very popular over the past year or two amongst Western astrologers, especially I feel like amongst like younger, younger, newer generations of astrologers. And that's been like a notable, not departure isn't the right word, but a notable shift, I think, that's been like obvious and very visible to like everybody. Would would you say that that's at least correct as a baseline? Yeah, definitely. I and I think we both probably noticed it at the same time, which was UAC last year. Right. Um, so that would be a solid year and a half. You know, it was at, for me, it was at the, the live recording of the podcast that we did at, um, at UAC. I said some things about astrological magic and there, um, there was thunderous applause. And I was like, really, mm -hmm. you know, um, because astrological magic is something that I've been, trying to figure out and working on since i don't know in terms of like doing formal operations 2005 ish okay. right so and for the virtually the entirety of that time um nobody cared i cared and there were you know three or four other old school weirdos right um on small forums that cared but you know it seemed like it it seems like it, it's gone from being a weird kids in the corner thing to everybody's or not. It seems like everybody. It's obviously not everybody. It's just our little small part of the world, right? Sure. But um, yeah, the the interest seems like it spiked 500% in the matter of six months. Yeah, and even after you act. So because the last time you came on the show to talk about this, of course, was with was not long after UAC with the release of your book, which was a compilation of papers by different, sometimes very prominent astrologers on like different topics in astrological magic. And that to me, that was a watershed moment. And it's not that that was the turning point that influenced everything, but certainly over the past couple of years, especially after UAC, I feel like things really sped up in that that area. Yeah, um, it was it was that uh, the celestial art. Um, available at fine internets everywhere. Right. Um was certainly fortuitously timed. Um I wish I could say that I knew that that's exactly when astrological magic would hit and that's why we released it then. Not true. And also my uh, my wife Kate um a couple month like maybe a month before that was like, "You know what? 
um, what if I do some of the astrological magic stuff? Like, you don't have time. I'm, I want a project and had been working on getting that ready for maybe, maybe two months before UAC. Okay. Um, and that, that's her business sphere and sundry. And then that, um, she, you know, we thought it'd be a good project to, you know, worth doing. Um, but you know, within a couple months that hit that, that wave of interest immediately. And so we got to, uh, we got to see how interested people were. And I, I think Kate's approach is certainly made more people interested, but it also intersected with that same like, oh, this is kind of happening now. Yeah. Well, and, and let's also be honest because it's um, also partially prompted by the discussions that we've had like on the podcast. Like we, you came on to talk about your book and we promoted it and we've certainly like once Sphere and Sundry launched, like we've mentioned it and you've plugged it. Mm -hmm. So it's like I feel in some ways um, that the podcast and the audience that we've certainly promoted that stuff, some of that stuff to the audience, and, and that's influenced people a little bit. People have been influenced by your work and your yeah, wide I've been, platform. I've been, you know, and I've been um, talking about it for a long time. I'm right. just, I was just used to not many people caring. The yeah, the uh, there's a lot of co-creation. But the point I was making about Sri and Sundry is what was interesting is um, that there were two series that were done. Uh, and no, there were three. They were in the can already before uh, UAC happened, mm -hmm. and so it wasn't like, "Oh, this is huge! I'm going to get in on this." It was like, "Oh, this will be a good project." Mm -hmm. uh, and then, just like just like with the book, not um, not being released specifically at the point in space time that we thought astrology and magic would intersect, right? But it it all happened at the it all seemed to happen within the same six months yeah it was that like jupiter and scorpio transit especially i think a lot of us at the time weren't mm -hmm. fully but it, by the end of that transit i feel like we all were very uh not pinning it completely on that but that certainly had a bit to do with it yeah and i think that um the fact that it was uh it was jupiter and scorpio making all year trines to neptune okay because uh historically you know if we just look at what people believe and what kind of things people are interested in when Neptune's in Pisces, it, it, I would say it blows the doors open, but really it just kind of melts the doors, mm. um, on a very, uh, to take one example from last time in American history, um, which was like the, I believe it was the very end. The ingress was the end of 1848 into about 1861, 62, um, that's when spiritualism exploded, mm. where it became a normal and semi-respectable thing to get together and talk to ghosts mm -hmm. on Friday night. Or to do like seances and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's what I'm referring to. And so Neptune in Pisces in that 14 year arc is interested in <sighs> opening people up to weirder things. And I think that that Jupiter, it seemed like that Jupiter and Scorpio intersection with that that was planetary magic the year the year before it had been witchcraft mm -hmm. um this year uh it seems like tarot has gotten that same bump mm. but um you know all of we can fit all of this within the within the neptune in pisces but all the other planets are helping it with that agenda or hurting it in different ways yeah or even astrology like initially a couple yeah. of years ago when all of those media articles are coming out about the sudden rise in popularity of astrology i was kind of skeptical but then after that year that same year of jupiter going through scorpio like i really visibly saw the shift in even like our audience for the podcast and, and a lot of people in their like 20s 
coming into the field suddenly during that time and astrology becoming more popular and more trendy in some ways. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we're, yeah, we're, I don't, I don't know if we're in the wake of that or in the world that, that, that rise is created or if it's still rising, but we're, we're in it. Yeah. Well, we were talking about that the other night, like the question of like, if that will drop off at some point and what that drop off looks like exactly uh, in terms of if something is like popular and trendy for a little while, if it falls out of fashion and who sticks around after that point versus mm -hmm. who doesn't. And, right. And is it like, uh, is there a backlash equal to the rise or is it simply an elevator to a new plateau that'll just hold for some time? Yeah. I mean, that's always been my fear is I, I'm waiting for like the skeptical backlash because the skeptical, uh, whole skeptical movement from my perspective feels like it's taken a bit of a dive over the past few years mm -hmm. in terms of its like coherency and, and messaging and antagonism. Not that they're any less antagonistic against astrology, but I just don't feel like it's been as much of an issue. Whereas at other times in history, like that's actually a potential issue in terms of rise in opposition to astrology, either from like uh, skeptics or from uh, like religious folk of different sort. Yeah. If uh, so, there's a couple things there. I would say one. I think the reason that the people that call themselves skeptics right now aren't doing very well is that there's a tendency in this, you know, this uh, 21st century skepticism to just defend materialism as opposed to being skeptical of all claims of knowledge, which mm -hmm. is what like a good philosophical skeptic is supposed to do. Right. Like they're not in terror. They're not talking about the egregious violations of the scientific method, which are happening, which have been happening in medical journals. Like it's just, you know, the weirdos are wrong, but every, you know, it's a very, they put themselves in a position where they're just defending the system and people are, by and large, um, increasingly aware of the imperfections in the system. So I think that's part of why they're not doing so well. Sure. I'd love to see, I'd love to see a skeptical movement that returned to deep philosophical roots and was like, you know, in, um, a, a deep, uh, epistemic humility. Um, uh, uh, how should we say? Yeah. A humility before the project, uh, in the face of the project of how do we know anything? Let's start from the beginning and let's be careful and let's recognize that all claims to knowledge are fraught with, um, you know, are, are fraught with danger, but that's not yeah. what they do. I don't, I don't see that happening anytime but, soon, honestly, like no, just I, probably I, trolling like people that have different belief systems is the primary yeah, that's, motivation uh, <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, that's like, that's kind of the story of the internet. Half the internet right now is trolling people that have different belief systems right. from every perspective. As yeah. much as I would like to say that Astro Twitter wouldn't dare do such a thing. Yeah. They're very like high-minded folk. Uh, so, but returning back to the topic, I mean, that was a good point that let's say 10 years ago or 15 years ago, when we started coming into the field and we're attending conferences, there were not talks on like astrological magic. And we should also mention, I mean, because I guess it's also relevant and tied in here, there were also not really talks on traditional astrology. Like the traditional revival is relatively young over the past 30 years, like starting with the Lilly movement in the late mid to late 1980s then accelerating with Project Hindsight, and then not really being completed because it's like the Renaissance and the medieval tradition had their revivals, but the Hellenistic tradition 
and the completion of the revival of that was only completed recently with like the release of like my book in 2017 and Demetra's book. Uh, what was it like earlier this year in, in early 2019? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, there's, um, and it, I don't think that we can unpick the, uh, the timing of the rise of traditional astrology and the return of astrological magic because a full uh, a full or a fuller textual restoration of astrology and then exploration um, of that textual restoration <laughs> um, you, you see you start seeing the connecting pieces to magic show up right um because they otherwise weren't in like modern astrology or 20th century astrology like the only you would see the theosophist attitudes mm. towards what they thought magic was show up okay which um or like an aberration like maybe like alistair crowley or something yeah um, like early 20th century astrology yeah i mean crowley uh crowley, crowley ghost wrote for uh evangeline adams um and actually i i remember reading crowley's book which we know through the extensive documentation of Crowley's life, he wrote entirely on cocaine. Okay. And it's really good mm. for like 1920s. You, if you read it, it's solid. He's actually considering uh, Uranus and Neptune in the context of the older books that he's read and thinking about like, how do I, how do I, uh, you know, how do I uh, understand these within the context of an older tradition? It's, it's shockingly right. good. I yeah. was prepared to poo poo it. I was meant to go back and read that the republished book by the OTO under his name to see what his synthesis was of like the more traditional astrology books he was reading with the more modern approaches and to what extent his synthesis ended up influencing some of the subsequent modern Western astrology in, in that regard. Yeah, I don't know if it was that influential. It, it reads like a good first half of the 20th century in English astrology book with um, uh, with a lot of like careful with a lot of extra notes of careful thinking and reference to the tradition. It doesn't look like you know it doesn't read like Lily, but I actually have that right around here. So here's the book that was republished in like the 2000, The General Principles of Astrology, and it says Alistair Crowley with Evangeline Adams, edited by Hermanus Beta. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. But anyway, but um, yeah, so there's there's Crowley, but most of the stuff that references magic um, in that um, late 19th, early 20th century material um, isn't written by people who practice magic. Okay, you know the um, you have the the Theosophists who have oh, we could say generously that it is a worldview that involve that includes the practice of magic right it's a paradigm where magic is possible um but they weren't uh, but you weren't trained to do practical work mm -hmm. as uh, as a theosophist right um and so most references to practical work like magic to get a job get some money you know whatever and be more attractive whatever you know all of the standard practical things that people want um, that wasn't taught, and usually there's a lot of shade thrown that in theosophical literature. You know, that's that's evil black magic because that's magic for something that pleases the ego. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you have a culture of people that won't touch something with a thirty foot pole, um, they're generally not the best for understanding or explaining the technical nuances of how to do that. Sure. Yeah. And even I mean, the theosophy stuff was dominating 
early 20th century astrology from like 1900 to the let's say the 50s but then there was a definite shift uh towards like at one point in the 60s and 70s and 80s one of the big trends was like scientific astrology and like mm -hmm. there was a real movement and belief that we were on the cusp of like demonstrating astrology from a scientific or like a st statistical standpoint and a lot of energy surrounding that and sometimes when that happens in the astrological tradition periodically there's a tendency to try to like remove what's perceived as like the fluff and like just focus on the core pieces and the the biggest yeah. extreme of that is like Gokland's work where mm -hmm. he wanted to remove everything that he couldn't validate through his statistical models which included i think removing things like aspects and the the old 12-fold house division system and even there were some planets i think that he couldn't get astrological correlates with yeah he, he was it was angles and a few planets right right um, um and i mean we can you can see that i think you can see that to some degree echoing up from the distant past with the difference between a platonic and aristotelian approach to astrology mm -hmm. or and with Tole, ptolemy there's uh Tolem there, there's certainly as uh, my friend gordon would put it there's an attempt to science astrology up mm -hmm. in Tol ptolemy right you know get it shined up put some chrome goggles on it yeah because there were pieces of the tradition that ptolemy inherited that he thought he could rationalize and could make sense in a more almost like mechanistic uh, causal astrological model where the planets are, are influencing events to happen and you have like a rationale for different techniques that astrologers are use that they use but then there's some techniques that either get downplayed or get rejected because they come off as too mystical or not fitting in with that broader project or like scientific paradigm mm -hmm. Um, so we have that, but also in the 20th century, we have the move towards like psychological and character-based astrology, mm -hmm. eventually culminating in like the works of people like Liz Green and some of the Center for Psychological Astrology type people, Howard Sisportas. Yeah, and I, th I think that that intersects really nicely with the, or that's described in a way that's relevant to magic um, very well by uh, Richard Tarnas in his. Um, um, I don't know, uh, super important, looking for a better word than super important, but super important work, Cosmos and Psyche, where mm -hmm. he talks about the process of disenchantment in the 20th century and how the disen uh, the world gets disenchantment and the, re the last refuge of enchantment is the purely subjective, um, which is the psychological. Mm -hmm. And so you can see astrology literally um, retreating from a model of an enchanted world to, well, we can't do anything external with this astrology, but the psyche, the soul, the interiority, the consciousness is still enchanted and still worth doing, and that's going to be the scope for our work. Yeah, well, yeah, that's funny. The, I mean, because that's then kind of ironic because then modern astrology is the opposite of traditional in terms of its orientation, in terms of um, trying to predict concrete external events, and also modern astrology is, is also divorced, not just from the traditional approach, but also from any remnants of the magical approach that still exists, I feel like, for the most part. Yeah, it, it's um, a purely psychological astrology is, by definition, isolated, mm -hmm. um, which is um problem. Um, <laughs> I don't want to go into a critique of that. Sure. I don't feel like I need to beat up on that. But um, what's interesting, you know, uh, Tarnas in uh, in framing the disenchantment of the external world in the 20th century, 
um, and the, the sort of last refuge of enchantment, he identifies that as a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and part of his stated project in Cosmos and Psyche is an attempt to um, um, re-enchant the world um, and not by sprinkling fairy dust on it, by, but by showing that um, the relationships of outer planets consistently gives us, um, uh, gives us very uh, shockingly similar, uh, shockingly similar periods of history. If we look at, you know, we talked uh, yesterday, was it yesterday, about what happens when Saturn's conjunct Pluto, right? And we get shockingly similar themes every time. And so he was trying to demonstrate that, like, astrology is not just inside an individual. Right. right? And I would say that um, if we're to take the project of uh, the reenchantment of the world, then um, the restoration of traditional astrology sort of does that by it. It does a lot of that by itself <laughs> if, you, if you practice it. And then you see how it works, and then you sit with the implications. Because the you know when you see something like zodiacal releasing work as well as it works, you're like, okay, well, um, things there there there've got to be some other rules to the way reality works other than what I was taught in school or mm -hmm. in college because this is way outside the explanatory models that I have. Right. And so, and I mean, and as far as Turnus went, though, he just posited synchronicity as an explanatory principle and like maybe that the cosmos is ensouled i guess is where he took it partially he, yeah i think that he did a great job of identifying the problem mm -hmm. and uh sort of did some work to try to move in the direction of what he saw as a solution mm -hmm. um I, I i don't um yeah uh, i i don't think he solved the problem i think you need um a restoration of the rest of <laughs> astrological history um and i think you need magic to actually solve the problem sure which is well beyond one person's uh the scope of one person's efforts no matter how talented or hardworking. right but i thought i mean turnus i always saw his book as the high watermark of modern astrology of like the final not the final final form but it was un adulterated by the influence of traditional astrology, the revival that had just started in the decade or two prior to that. And it represented a really good intellectual attempt to make the case for astrology to the public, to intellectuals especially, and to make it look palatable from that standpoint of like if if you're gonna get one of the our smartest, smartest guys and, and get them to make a pitch for modern astrology to intellectuals or philosophers or other people in the modern period than like cosmos and psyche is that that book yeah i i agree with that and i think that what's ironic about that is it also without meaning to provides a perfect critique of the limits of a psychology only astrology and the core method of the book which is taking slow moving planetary pairs in order to look at history is exactly is literally just a, a faithful extension of the primary method for looking at history which we've got astrologers doing for at least 1100 years before that um, in traditional astrology you look at jupiter and saturn as forming the bones of history because those are the two slowest movers mm -hmm. and tarnas extends that and he wasn't the first person to use this method but you know we've got people um I don't know, I think 40, 50 years before him doing this, but it's literally taking, okay, let's take Saturn 
and Pluto, they're both slow moving. How do they form history? So the method he uses to make his case is extremely faithful to the logic of traditional astrology and that um, that identification of the problem of the retreat of enchantment to pure subjectivity is in many ways a perfect critique of the limitations of the astrology that was happening at the late 20th century. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that, but that's a, so, so modern astrology reaches its, its final form in like the nineties and the two thousands. And then we have this revival of, of traditional and older forms of astrology. And some astrologers start going back and looking at um, texts that were written prior to the 20th century and realizing that astrology was practiced differently back in the day, if you go back a few centuries. So they started with the Renaissance tradition and like the 17th century astrologers that were writing the earliest textbooks on astrology in English, like Lilly and some of his contemporaries. And then some of them, like Zoller and Hand, started going back and looking at, well, what sources were they drawing on? And they found sources like Banati in like the 12th or 13th century, or Saul and Masha Allah in the 8th and 9th century, and Ben Dykes published a lot of translations of those guys. Mm -hmm. And then we had still others like Robert Schmidt who and James Holden who went back and started translating the oldest Greek texts that survived from the 1st century through the 6th century CE from the uh, Greco-Roman period and found like the oldest forms of astrology that were practiced in the West back then. And that's sort of what has been revived and has suddenly become popular again over the past decade is those traditional forms of astrology from the 1st through the 17th century uh, and some of the techniques and some of the approaches that they use. Mm -hmm. um, but one of them that was very slowly revived and is part of that that you stumble upon occasionally when you're going through the tradition is this occasional overlap and intersection between the astrological community and the magical community uh, because magic is not well there's a bit of a debate about this because it depends on who you talk to but magic I, I see astrology and magic as two separate things that sometimes intersect and overlap in the astrological tradition but they don't always perfectly overlap because they're not necessarily one in the same yeah i, I would like definitely agree that they are not one in the same okay there's a strong venn diagram overlap and there are certain kinds of magic um, and certain astrological things that only exist in that overlap. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of magic that's not astrology. There's a lot of astrology that's not magic. And um, yeah, that runs, um, that that's very consistent historically. You have a lot of points of intersection. And that was um, one of the essays in um, The Celestial Art, um, was uh, Lee Lehman's essay, um, is a quick tour of the many of many points of overlap and intersection. Um, and so I, I can't recall all of that because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Lee Lee came up with like I don't know it was it was um, it was so extensive that in editing we had to cut it down. Because it wasn't list every single known point, but like give a give a give a great overview of the points of intersection and what those looked like. Yeah. Um. But you know, you shouldn't conflate them. So, I, so if we agree that's a Venn diagram, can we define our two topics and how? Like, I always well, define. Let, let, let me add one more thing to okay. this because um, there's an idea that was uh, very popular. Uh, well, I don't know, very popular, but um, is found many places in Renaissance texts. Um, and we could maybe make arguments for it being there earlier, but it's really obvious in Renaissance texts where you'll see 
um, astrology, magic, and alchemy as three separate but intersecting disciplines. And then all three are encircled uh, by philosophy, mm -hmm. right? Um, meaning that there's an understanding of the world um, which is implied by astrology, which is implied by magic, which is implied by alchemy, and um, understanding the way the world really works, which is the project of uh, philosophy encircles and connects all of those things. We would say, uh, in modern modern speak, that you know that's the philosophical implications of all of those, um, but they're not the same thing, right? But there is a there is an encircling. Um, metaphysic, or there's an encircling um, set of questions about reality that are implied by these arts. Okay. Um, so my my definition of astrology that I've always used, and the best way that I've been able to come up with a concise definition is, is that it's the study of the correlation between celestial movements and earthly events. And there's probably like a longer version of that that you could make, like adding on provisos, like and how it relates to humankind or events on earth or events in people's lives but my mm -hmm. primary definition is just the study of the correlation between celestial movements and earthly events because then that includes the primary fundamental underlying principle in astrology that there is it posits that there is a correlation for some reason between celestial movements of like the planets or stars or other celestial bodies uh, and those movements and events or things that happen on earth yeah, in, I'm, in the... I'm really comfortable with that as a definition. Okay. Um, and then I like that because that that includes um, both that that uh, the astrology that started in the Eastern Mediterranean and then moved west. Well, it went east and then it moved west. Um, it includes uh, in Vedic astrology. It includes Chinese astrology. It would also include, should we say, um, less. Uh, less cathedral-esque astrologies um like planting calendars uh for days of the moon uh hunting calendars etc cetera, etc cetera, where it's like oh no, it's uh you're going to do better if you fish on this phase of the moon sure right? yeah and well and it also includes them regardless of whether the conceptualization of the model for why there's a correlation is that it's causal that uh, the celestial movements or bodies or stars or planets are causing events to happen on earth or regardless of if it's only a synchronistic model of that they're just correlating with or acting as omens without necessarily being the direct reason or the direct cause that those events are happening. So it sidesteps that question, but right. it instead just de describes or defines and includes in the definition the phenomenon that it posits that there is a correlation, whereas there, there otherwise shouldn't be. And, and proponents or opponents of astrology would say there is no correlation between celestial movements and earthly events. Right. But the, um, the correlation comes first, and then we can explain that or model that in right. a variety of ways. So how do we define, how do you define magic then as different then from astrology? Or what is a broad or similarly broad definition that we could give for magic if possible? Do you have one? I don't. Um, I tend to try to break down magic into what what are you actually doing? Because there are, I think, uh, several subspecies of things that um, people would um, say, oh, that's magical, but that are very different. Um, so, for example, we could take 
as one category, um, work with uh, divine forces, which overlaps with religion, where how do you create, how, how do you construct and enact a ritual effectively to a god, goddess, or whatever divine force in such a way that that force comes down and changes either human the human beings involved or changes uh, events in their lives in accord with whatever the requests are. Mm -hmm. right? And that's uh, generally gets labeled thergy. Okay. Right? Um, but we could also- Which means like in Greek means like God working or something like that. Yeah, yeah working with gods, mm -hmm. right? Um, and as you know, I've spent a lot of time um, with Vedic astrology over the last couple of years. And um, a, a lot of what gets described because of its function as remedial practices are really um, scaled down thergy. It's, you know, if you've got this particular configuration and gives you these problems, you work with this, this goddess at these times in order to heal that or, um, you know, keep the, uh, keep the difficulty level low, right? And so thergy uh, or work with the divine is meaningfully different than something than a variety of um, um, explicitly practical operations. Um, not that thergy can't have a practical goal, um, but it can also have a non-practical goal. It can have a, a yomblikin goal where the primary goal is the further refinement and dignification of the soul. But then you've also got things, uh, let, let's say like they take like a cunning man's handbook or like a Swedish black book where it's like, yep, this is how you enchant your shotgun so that it won't misfire. Okay. Right. Where, which doesn't involve, um, you know, which has a different shape and a very different goal, uh, or like, mm, you know, the sticking with that, um, uh, sort of uh, cunning man, um, rural practical magic thing. Like, yep, this is how you uh, enchant your field. You know, this is how you bring rain uh, during a drought, or this is how you um, scare off the asshole neighbor, mm. right? Which um, um, is recognizably magic if it works, but is very different than like the full temple, holy, holy thergy. Okay. Right. Um, but. So here, let me let me throw throw this uh, working definition that I have out at you, okay. and just let me know how what it, how it sounds. So my attempt to make a similarly concise as the astrology one, which is just the study of the correlation between celestial movements and earthly events for magic, is the attempt to manipulate or influence events through supernatural means. Do you think that would be a accurate yet still broad enough to encompass? A wide variety of different practices that we otherwise consider to be magical. Um, I I think that's decent. Um, I think. I mean, what what's, if, what strikes you the wrong way about it? Well, first? so supernatural um, supernatural is kind of a funny loaded term. Mm -hmm. I if I were going to try to boil it down, um, it's looking at uh, methods of action that have um, identity where they I, here's the structure of it as I'm seeing it there with all of the magic that I mentioned there's an identifiable action and there's an identifiable result mm -hmm. um, but the means by which the action creates the result is not visible mm -hmm. right so you know you do the thing let's you know you Let's it's, say you, it's, you, it's hidden or you could say occult, occulted. Yeah, yeah, and so and then you can speculate on, and there are many um, <laughs> there are many theories about how magic works, 
But um, the reason that there are so many theories is that 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 cause part is occulted, right? There's a great quote from uh, Peter Carroll, who's often recognized as the sort of father of uh, chaos magic. He said, magic works in practice, but not theory. Okay. <laughs> so it's it's a attempt to um, control or influence or manipulate events through um, a mechanism that might be hidden or occulted uh, in some way through a mechanism that's not fully understood yeah, or clear. Visible. Okay. And I, I wouldn't say necessarily, yeah, manipulate, there are there is manipulative magic, but that's certainly, it's only inherently manipulative in the sense that it's it's changing. Um, what is it? Crowley like Crowley's quick definition was to cause uh, uh, to try to cause change in conformity with the will. Um, and so that problem with and that's good if you add that um, I mean that's, that seems pretty good. But then moving my hand becomes an act of magic and in a grander sense, sure it's all magic, but I want to. I think it's useful to differentiate the magic of me picking up a coffee cup mm -hmm. with the magic of me, uh, you know, me or someone. Let's say doing a healing ritual for someone a thousand miles away from the other person, and then them getting um, markedly uh, showing market gains in health within a day. Yeah. Right, like that. That that we would say, oh, that's magical. Me picking up that coffee cup on like a day to day level, like that's not so magical. Maybe in a deep philosophical sense, but only that. Yeah, and that's where I was trying to throw in the supernatural world word, even though that's a weird term to use and has a lot of its own loaded implications. But the notion that it's not through natural means, it's not through like picking um, a, like an herb or giving somebody a medicine necessarily, but it's through trying to bring in some other element that is uh you know obviously out saying outside of the natural world is tricky well, but it's outside of the natural like sense of causation of yeah cause I would, and effect I, I think we're best I, I I think that uh I'd like to stick with where the the me we can't see how it works okay because we don't there's a lot of stuff that we can't see that we don't really have the right to say is unnatural just because we don't get it and just because we you know with our limited senses can't perceive it directly right um but it's you know, it, it seems mysterious because we don't pick it up with our, our eyeballs or ear holes. Sure. Okay. Well, let, let's tie it into astrology then because that might help us to define more clearly how it's how to define it in an astrological context where we have a specific set of things. And um, because in the ancient and the Hellenistic tradition, let's like let's go back like early astrology, uh, because we have astrology and magic. Um, developing in Mesopotamia and developing in Egypt, where they both have their own astrological traditions, then they both have their own magical traditions. Eventually, at the point where we get certainly texts in the Hellenistic tradition that are like recognizably Western astrology, um, I, I, I see and I kind of identify what seem like two different strands or two different streams where there's this one text by the, um, uh, the alchemist Zosimus mm -hmm. from like the fourth century. And at one point, he starts quoting what seemed to be two astrological texts, one of them attributed to Hermes and another attributed to Zoroaster. And they seem to have been like arguing or disagreeing about uh, the concept of fate. Mm -hmm. And the Hermetic text was promoting this idea that uh, that's repeated by a lot of the astrologers, like Valens and Manilius, and even Ptolemy mentions it in passing that the purpose of astrology, and especially natal astrology, is to learn your fate ahead of time and learn what events will happen in your future ahead of time so that you can accept it 
and prepare yourself in advance um, to accept that which you cannot change the outcome of. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that that seems like one of the few philosophical principles that almost all the astrologers mention. So it seems like a large part of the purpose of astrology in the Hellenistic period, especially when approaching things from a more Stoic standpoint. But then Zosimus cites this other text that seems to have been astrological attributed to Zoroaster, where it says that fate might be negotiable or you might be able to change your fate through magical or alchemical rituals, mm -hmm. and that that might be part of the goal of astrology from that vantage point. And I've sort of identified that as another stream that was going on. And there we see in some of the ancient Greek magical texts that occasionally there are some magical rituals where they're appealing to certain deities and asking them to help change their fate. Mm -hmm. Or you have the doctrine of the master of the nativity. And Porphyry and Iamblichus talk at one point about how some philosophers or some astrologers think that if you identify the master of the nativity, you can identify your guardian spirit, and then you can use certain rituals to attempt to communicate with your guardian spirit and ask them if you can change your fate. And Iamblichus then argues with Porphyry and says that doesn't make sense because if the guardian daimon is the one who appoints your fate and is supposed to enforce it, then why would they change it for you? And there's this whole like back and forth that they have. Mm -hmm. So, but anyway, so I see that as part of the tension in the ancient tradition where you have different approaches of like a pure, some astrologers that are just saying the purpose is just to know the future and figure out what you have to accept, and others who might be saying, no, you can use astrology in order to change the future and make it differently than it might have been otherwise. Yeah. Um, and I, I, um, yeah, I would probably say use rather than purpose. Um, you know, you can, you, I, and I think you can use astrology for effectively, um, for both of those, both of those purposes. Um, and yeah, I think there, that, that, that is a, a long running sort of split within astrology, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, what are you doing with the astrology? And there is that, that very strong Hellenistic concern with fate. Right. Um, and, you know, fate, destiny, a couple different words. Um, and, uh, yeah, and also with death and how do you have a good death? Um, and that's, that's also connected with, well, that's connected with the Christ myth. That's connected with, um, understandings at the time of what happens to you when you die, um, where it's not heaven or hell, but if you, you know, if you live heroically and die well, you get a better, um, <laughs> you, you get a, you get a better afterward. Um, and if we go back a little further, one of the, uh, Egyptian components to the multi-part soul is literally the name, mm -hmm. you know, um, and we, we don't see it quite as explicitly in the Greek world, but the concern with the name, um, the, the, the concern with the name after death is important too. Um, and so all this stuff, uh, all this stuff is, uh, of tremendous importance as we can, uh, as can be seen from the text. And so if sure. you think you've got a shit fate, um, you are certainly going to be concerned with how do I change that? Right. And to, to, to scale it down a little bit. I mean, from, that becomes the primary issue, right? The question of, can you change your fate? And if you know your future and you don't like it, what do you do about that? Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's, so there's that on a big level, but I think that, um, the more micro level is also highly relevant to the, to this discussion and to the practice of astrology and magic. 
So um, let's just say you don't know your you don't uh, presume to know your fate in a grand sense, but you can see based on your techniques that the next year has a bunch of very specific challenges um, that look like it's not going to go very well. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, you don't know what the destiny of your soul is, but there's a motivation there to use what methods can be uh, you can get your hands on to make those things go better than they would. And that's the question is, how do I make that go better than it would? What are the methods? And so one, one thing that's interesting about, you know, uh, your definition of astrology and then sort of what we ended up with as a good definition of magic is that both of them, with both of them, we have uh, two data points um, with a mysterious linkage. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so they're both interested in exploring, um, you know, the concealed machineries. Um, Maybe the study of outcomes is or is, is part of the crossover in some ways. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. Because um, we, we have an identifiable action in ritual and an identifiable result. But then there's the mysterious causal link. And then with astrology, we have an identifiable planetary or stellar position and an identifiable, an identifiable outcome down here on Earth. But the linkage is, again, mysterious. So there is a nice like kind of natural confluence of those definitions. I mean, that's really interesting because that was some of the language um, that Schmidt drew out in some of the Hellenistic texts was they, they kept using this term katarche over and over again or katarche, which means like inception or beginning or commencement and that astrology was the study of um, those inceptions and then there was a correlating term that they always used to talk about the outcome or the result or in like a in ptolemy's text it became the the effect of the inception mm. so you have the inception and then you have the outcome and that astrology was the study of those inceptions and outcomes which mm -hmm. like the birth right. chart itself is an inception and then the outcome is whatever your fate is in different parts of your life as a result of those planetary positions or in electional astrology the inception or the beginning of the event is the katarchy and then the outcome is the result as a result of starting at that moment in time mm -hmm. yeah 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 that's I, I like this area that we're operating in here but yeah um and so magic um both as a intersects with astrology as well as how it responds to astrology is interested in um, in increasing the the degree to which we can shape the events and experiences moving forward mm -hmm. and so from a magic uh, perspective a lot of practice there are a lot of I've encountered a lot of practitioners less so but uh, less so lately, but there's, I would say, there, there's a divide within magic as to whether um, astrology, to what degree astrology needs to be considered. There are some schools that believe that if you have certain, if you have certain initiations or you do certain practices, that the planets, uh, then what the chart says becomes less valid, and some would go as far as to say that they become invalid. Um, and there are a lot of different variants of that. Um, I know that there are some traditions that will replace the birth chart with the the chart of a person's initiation, which is really interesting because then because that doesn't um, that doesn't invalidate the pull of the planets. That simply uh, <laughs> that simply allows you to get a different set of 
planets to pull on you. Right. But th that's an interesting point that a lot of the magical tradition in like late 20th century like astrology wasn't incorporated that much. No, no. There was um <clears throat> there's an active in my experience um uh, uh, of the English speaking magical world for the last 20 years is that there was uh there's actually a lot of hostility because a lot of people um go to they go to astrology if you're drawn to astrology you are uh or I would say once you are drawn to astrology and you explore it you find a number of things that um are uh, that are going that are likely going to occur um that are not things that you necessarily had planned right you have to be able to ex uh, you have to be able to live with the um the knowledge that there are things which are fated for lack of a better term or things which you don't have the power to change but which nonetheless can be predicted with a fair degree of accuracy mm -hmm. if you are interested in magic what you one you're probably more interested in increasing the amount of agency and um power you have to shape your life internally and let's say especially externally but also internally that's a really good term that we should incorporate into future definitions the attempt to increase agency mm -hmm. okay glad you like that and so you know and if you're learning um magic that actually works um just like you know with astrology there are a lot of people that, that learn crap astrology there are a lot of people that learn crap magic but assuming that you're uh, engaging with a legitimate branch tree or tree, branch, twig, stem of the tradition, you're going to learn things that allow you to have more agency. And so that's a very, that's a very, on a psychological level, that's a very different experience. And personality types, um, you know, are comfortable with one or not the other. People who are strongly concerned with seeing themselves as highly agentic and feel great about learning new things are going to tend to reject being told that that's not possible for you or you have to wait 10 years mm -hmm. um and then you know like the very you know the more patient introspective type that doesn't mind um having the the limitations or the time scales that they can't control outlined for them that's a different you know they may not uh they, they may not um be super comfortable being told oh you can do all these things and you're just not learning that mm -hmm. so there, there's a different psychology to each two and you get especially when you're looking at it at a full demographic level when you're taking twenty thousand people in each category you've got a lot of personality type a in one category and a lot of personality type b in another category and so on a just on a um, personal level, I remember going to the first esoteric book conference in 2008, meeting a bunch of wizards. Um, and a lot of there were a lot of people who were very hostile to any of astrology's claims because mm -hmm. they're like, "No, you're you're shitting on my agentic praxis." <laughs> okay. They didn't put it quite that way. Um, and then also, just to come back to Crowley, the OTO um, which he took over and then kind of and really reshaped had a, a a tremendous emphasis on will on 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 willing things um and that's in his uh that's in his definition of magic right it's the, these things that come into being in accordance with the will and so if you're really focused on will then and you know um and everybody at your lodge is really focused on will even though Astro uh, crowley thought astrology was very interesting and spent a lot of time with it that's a very different thing, right? Mm -hmm. it, you know, you get a, a let's let's all and you know his thing. Thelema literally means will, right? 
And so you get a will cult and no, they're not super excited to be told that, um, you know, um, sure you'll have kids, but probably not until, you know, after your 36th year, because you've got the Saturn position. They're like, no, I can do it. I want to do it at 27. Right. Um, I think that's bringing up something then and bring us back to a point, which is that one of the things I'm taking from this is that astrology is inextricably linked with the concept of fate and that you almost can't talk about astrology, even though modern astrology moved away from that, moved more into free will, more into humanistic astrology, and more into character analysis and things like that, the concept of fate is, was still there. And especially the further back you go in the tradition, the more intertwined astrology becomes with fate, especially in the Hellenistic tradition. And that was one of the things that was um, something I had to grapple with and was hard for me initially when I started learning Hellenistic astrology was that it was more prediction oriented and that it was better at describing concrete external events that would occur in a person's life and doing so accurately, which couldn't help but bring up uh, philosophical issues concerning fate and free will and how much control you have to change things that you see coming up in the birth chart. Mm -hmm. It becomes one of the central problems that anybody that starts studying traditional astrology has in some sense. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, so fate is a very, it's a big word. It's a hard word. Um, it is, you know, it speaks to that, which is inalterable. Um, and so the important question is, is everything in the chart faded, mm -hmm. right? Or are certain things faded and certain things tendencies, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's um, that, that's echoed in many ways by uh, the old um, the the rule of three, right? Yeah, you see it once, yeah, you know there'll be a little bit of that. See it twice, yeah, that's gonna it's gonna tend strongly in that direction. See it three times, then that's um, you know see the same outcome. Um, uh, described three times in the chart with three different sets of factors, and um, that is that will at least be experienced as fate if fate is um, what is uh, 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 an event or a set of experiences that you do not have the power to alter. And that that same thinking is in uh, Vedic astrology as um, f uh, f uh, fully fixed karma, which um, you won't, you don't have enough time to alter within a given life. But then there's this other stuff, and so uh, I would say, on a practical level, um, as a a practitioner of astrological magic and other magic, and a practitioner of astrology, and um, you know, having friends who, that were in that category. I, I don't know anybody who believes that you can alter everything um, via the practice of magic or that you can rewrite the chart. Mm. Um, it's there's uh, the practical experience of you know the intersection of astrology and magic is figuring out what can be changed, how easy or hard it's going to be, and you know when the best times for that are. And so, the, in practice, a lot of it is changing what can be changed, uh, or what you do have control over. And I would also argue that part of um, fate is that we um, uh, we are fated to end up in control and having lots of choices in some areas of our life. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's positive fate, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's there's the deagentic fate or the fate where we're we will be in a situation where we where we have zero control or 
absolutely minimal control. But, um, you know, you look, our predictive techniques also show you periods of time where a person will have all the power and the choices in the world. Um, and so what do you do when you're in a place with high agency, either because, um, because you have a lot of internal resources or external or both? And yeah. Um, and I guess that brings us up to the central point of this, at least the first half of this episode for me, which is that um, I got into astrology and got into Hellenistic astrology and discovered a form of astrology that was really good, I felt, at describing different aspects of a person's fate, um, both in a global sense in terms of things that are outside of their control, but even with some of the Time Lord techniques could accurately describe when the person would take certain actions that would have an important impact on their career, uh, like in Zodiac releasing. So it was startling in that it was describing not just external events, but also sometimes the choices that a person was making out of what they perceived to be free will. Oh uh, yeah, I, I think that um, any my experience of any meaningful definition of fate is that internal states um, are just as subject to that as external outcomes or events. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because if you could completely control um, your inner, your your experience, your state, you would make very different choices. Sure. Right. Uh, yeah, but then so from that perspective, it became important for me to develop and cultivate a philosophy that was consistent with that, which tended to emphasize more understanding and coming to terms with one's fate and being okay with that, whether it's good things or bad things. Mm. And that oftentimes, um, and that there was something like elegant and beautiful about that, that it didn't have to be this oppressive, negative thing, but instead um, could be something that was still useful and still helpful and still um, gave you some insight into the greater sense of meaning and purpose that your life had mm -hmm. and in that it was kind of beautiful and kind of elegant and kind of useful and that that was sufficient um, as both a practical practice in astrology as well as sort of an underlying philosophy for it um, and I didn't so, so I sort of that was the strand of the tradition that I ended up focusing on was the more stoic strand of the tradition. And even in that context, practices like electional astrology often end up having more to do with knowing that if I start this venture at this time, this will be the outcome. And instead of necessarily manipulating it all the time in order to get a desired result, just knowing and having a greater sense of knowingness of what the potential outcome will be when initiating certain actions in order to have a greater sense of like foreknowledge ahead of time and therefore a greater sense of acceptance um, in initiating any action at any moment in time. So that's like a sort of uh, strand of the astrological tradition, but there's also another strand of the astrological tradition where electional astrology comes in and that seems to be the primary overlap with the magical tradition yeah well and to manipulate outcomes yeah it's just gonna i mean it's hard i mean if you want to do a giant like a giant enclosing definition of fate then that can it can be that the practice of astrological magic um also is fate the practice of electional is fate but if we want if we're you know if you're working with a less grand definition then the ability to elect to choose when to do something has an impact on the outcome. And if we're using that um, that definition of magic that we came up with earlier, where the 
you, you see what the act is and you see what the result is, but you don't see what the causal mechanism is, then electional astrology qualifies as magic. And on a practical level, like that's a huge linkage point uh, historically. Yeah. And, I mean, it's just a question of are you, can you change your fate? Are you changing your fate by using electional astrology or are you not? Is one of well, the you're, questions. You're observably changing outcomes. Um, and whether you know, it depends on how big a how big um, your uh, how big your concept of fate is on a on a lived level. If you do it at this time, you get one result, and you do it at a different time, you get a different result. That's a, a choice with meaning with a meaningful difference in outcomes. Um, I, I want to take the electional bit a little further back because so using. Um, uh, you know, using uh, the, your definition of astrology, which I really like, um, very. If I wrote mine down, it would probably be about the same. Um, we can find um, figuring out when to schedule ritual is one of the, according to the our relationship to the sky, uh, is maybe is uh, is at the oldest strata of the usage of astrology, the usage of studying sky human world linkages. Scheduling, you said? Yeah, scheduling. Um, if we want to go way back, we can see that the few ritual centers from the ancient, ancient, ancient world that still survive because they're made out of stone are all lined very specifically to the sky. Uh, we see linkages at as far back as Gobekli Tepe. Um, and if we want to come forward to the still very old, uh, we see the construction of the Great Pyramids, or the Great Pyramid. All of the pyramids, to some degree, have uh, are built with a specific relationality to the sky, and all of these are ritual centers to some degree. And so, and I believe in the Rig Veda, there's uh, there are some timing bits um, that are astrologically. Um, uh, oriented for when do you propitiate or when do you do ritual to X, Y, or Z. And so that relationship between um, sky human world, which turns into timing, which then turns into ritual, which has an impact internally or externally, is as old as our records of human beings doing stuff. Yeah. And, and it's hard because it's also tied in with all, like religious beliefs and, and just the broader religious orientation towards nature and the cosmos and things like that. Um, and it's often then hard to distinguish between what is like astrology versus what is magic versus just what is religious um, ceremonies or, or things like that. Um, but there's a lot greater overlap. Um, so one of the questions I guess I have is not just can you change your fate, but is believing that you can change your fate in all instances healthy or is there well, a lack of I, acceptance of certain things that is, I, becomes I would, problematic at a certain. Well, point. I would say believing that you have uh, that your choices don't impact um, the outcomes in your life is extremely unhealthy. Yeah, and I know that that's the default modern take, and that's why even me adopting the position that it could be unhealthy—that the the belief in a complete free will that could change anything at any point in time is usually the opposite and would, would yeah I, I don't i don't i don't like the the free will thing because I, I don't believe in free will i believe your will is one ingredient of you know reality and that there's the agentic bit and then there's everything else and mm -hmm. that sometimes you have the ability to change a lot sometimes you have the ability to change just a few details and sometimes um it doesn't matter what your will is 
Yeah, I mean, those. So I don't, I don't see it as free, as in it doesn't get to just. It, it we're not free to write our story off the top of our head. I mean, I would go further than that though, and say, at the very least, that probably many of the most important and pivotal events and and life defining events that if somebody was to write a biography about your life, those things are going to be things that are faded, whether they're things that happen to you as a result of external external forces that are outside of your control or whether they have to do with internal things that you initiate or choices that you make on your own, that the most important things in your life are probably going to be things that are predetermined through like a the nexus of different causes and outcomes all having a confluence at specific points in your life in specific times. Yeah, some of them certainly. Um, you don't think most of, of them are? I think it depends on the life. I, I think some people's um, most memorable things, um, there's so much intentional choosing and work that goes into it where the outcome is a predictable result of those things. I think there are other lives where um, there are shocking, um, should we say, shocking and game-changing events which come into their life, which they could not possibly have called, which def uh, which really define the story. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I would say it depends on the life. I mean, that sounds to me like the the modern astrologers that sometimes say that your level of consciousness or spiritual evolution dictates how your birth chart is going to be experienced and whether the outcome is like positive or negative. And that's a philosophy from like 20th century theosophical society that I really don't like in a, in a belief that sets up a sort of hierarchy that what you experience, especially in terms of like negative external events, is somehow your fault when in case- Yeah, that, that's case, not what I was saying. Much um, of the time it's not. It's something that's outside of your control that you couldn't have changed like one way or another necessarily. Yeah, when I was talking about lives, I was just talking about observing different lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and that some lives, you see somebody work really hard on a thing for 20 years, and then they get a reward for working really hard on purpose, and that's what it is. There are other lives where somebody's doing something, and then they're in a car accident, and that puts them down a totally different path. And you know, you see fate or chance um, playing the primary authorship role, whereas in other lives, just reading biographies, it's very well, I decided to do this, and then that's exactly what happened. Now, why there's that difference in lives is a deeper question. And I think that, you know, if we look at people whose lives- I mean, lives, that's something we can see in charts though, usually. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think that people are set up um, at different levels of agency over their life. And then there, there's a big difference in how much power over events you have at different periods in your life. Sure, but then if that's something that's indicated in the chart, and the chart itself is just a diagram, a two-dimensional diagram that's cast that depicts the alignments of the planets at the moment a person is born, and that's telling you whether you're going to have agency in your life between the ages of like 40 and 45, then it's already operating within a premise that even your agency and, and amount of it at different points in your life is predetermined in some sense. Right. But what do you do? But what you do with your agency isn't necessarily described by that. I mean, it might be in some instances. Well, then it's it not is. really agency. I, see, I don't think that's true. Like, I know that that's usually the modern take that unless my quote unquote, unless I have free will that is uninhibited and can be anything I want it to be, is not dictated at all by 
internal personality characteristics or predispositions that it's not truly free will. Um, I don't think that's the case because we still experience the choices we make as, as ultimately as we're making them as a result of who we are and our background and and everything else that goes into that. And that choice of uh, that that experience of making choices as if we had a completely unencumbered free will seems to be more important than the question of whether or not it is truly not predetermined in some sense ahead of time. Yeah, I don't think will is ever unencumbered. So, um, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm never taking a contextless free will position. Okay. But then if it's not unencumbered, then you're, you would agree that it's not fully free in the sense that it's not fully indeterminate at any point in time? Well, so no, I, I, you've never heard me advocate for the free will position and I've never used, I've described will, but I've never said free will. Mm -hmm. It's always in the context of whatever the situation is. Um, if we're, you know, we're saying, uh, we're describing some lives and some periods of lives as um, having more agency than others, I would say there are periods where your will and the means to execute it are superior to what is facing you. And there are other periods of time where your will and the means to execute your will um, are less powerful than the forces arrayed against you. Sure. And I don't. So that's that's not free. And I don't disagree with that, but I would say that that's probably predetermined because you can often see the transits that a person is having at that time and the correlation they're having in describing that, or the time lord periods that are activated as indicating a period of greater prominence or greater activity in the actualization of the person's potential and other things like that. Yeah, I wouldn't say that that makes them fully predetermined, but it does mean that there are factors beyond our control which play into framing each situation. Okay. So for the larger events, though, in a person's life, like let's say a person meeting, let's say the person that becomes the love of their life and like gets married or something like that to that person for the next 60 or 80 years or something like that, mm -hmm. would you consider that to be like, I would consider that to be a major event in the person's life, a life defining event? that is probably predetermined on like another number of levels, um, especially from an astrological standpoint to the extent that we can look at a person's chart and find both natal indications as well as timing indications on multiple levels indicating that event often, especially at that specific point in time. Is it always predetermined? Um, see, I don't, I, I feel like it would be we would be lacking in epistemic humility to be able to say certainly that it is always predetermined. Well, the ability of the astrologer to say it is a separate issue. Like the ability of the astrologer to make specific predictions with what they have at their disposal is almost a sort of separate issue. But the question of whether on some larger global scale there are um, sort of the machinations of fate that are working behind the scenes in both people's birth charts as well as the transits and the timing periods and being able to see when the events happen that the astrological like confluence of indications is always there and supportive of that implies that there might be some like larger narrative or picture in the person's life that is yeah predetermined to the extent that it's being based on the birth chart which should have no connection with what happens in your life 30 or 40 or 50 years later well um one thing i will say is i will see people i will i will see indications where um let's say um 
um, partnership indicators are good after 32 um, and the person gets married at 27 um, and it doesn't work out. Well, yeah. Well, but, but the idea of partner in, partnership indicators that become good at a certain period is more of a Vedic thing, I feel like, than... No, I mean, there are certainly... Um, there's certainly timing techniques. Well, and we are talking about astrology as a whole, so I think Vedic's relevant, but even outside of Vedic, you know, we can look at a chart using purely Hellenistic techniques and we can say, oh, this period's not great for partnership. Um, things get good um, and stay good for a while. Let's say, you know, I'm just using 32 as a, uh, let's say that there's a, a macro shift in the part of Eros. And so, you know, things look great from 32 to 52, but they look not good at all from 20 to 32. And so you will see people who get married um, in a period that's not good for relationships. Um, and they have, the, they, have the, they have the capacity to do that and it doesn't work out, but they, they have the ability to make the choice to not or to... Uh, <laughs> uh, to, uh, to uh, finalize that union or to seal that union um, at a time that is not supportive at all. Uh, and you see, you know, you see problems with the relationship. Um, I mean, I think that's a way of looking at it, contextualizing, because I wouldn't contextualize it that way, because I would contextualize it more if they're in a level one Eros period that's not great for relationships in their first 30 years of life, but then they get into a significant relationship, but it doesn't become the relationship or the love of their life. That oftentimes it's just them hitting a, a brief, like level two peak period for a year or two within the context of a level one period is not that is not the most important one of their life. But then later at some point they move into their 30s or 40s, they go into the level one peak. And then shortly after that, they get into a relationship that lasts for two or three decades. I mean, that still has more to do to, to me with the overall context of like what their birth chart indicated from the moment of birth and the periods in which they would have some of the most important relationships of their life versus the periods in which things would be either relationships wouldn't be the focus or in which relationships would not go as well for whatever reason. So you don't think people can act at a time that is not faded? I think that they'll act at the time whatever their actions they take at different times will be what was faded and what was indicated in the birth chart to begin with. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, so I mean that to a certain degree invalidates all choices or just says that all choices are faded and that's not really Invalidates specific. them in what way? Oh, in that they're already predetermined. So um, it has to be not determined ahead of time in order to be valid? Well, in order to be a valid choice because if it's already predetermined, then you'll experience making the choice, but it's not really your choice. So, I mean, that, that's, that's not really know, a specifically cause... magical thing. That's all human choice. Mm -hmm. If all human choice is faded, that's sort of a separate issue than um, astrology and magic. But uh, no, that's primarily where this is in co coming from, going back to that text from Zosimus, because there's a huge strand of the astrological tradition, which was just revived recently, which is the majority of the ancient Hellenistic authors who believed that all choices and external events in a person's life were predetermined and that, that was the purpose of astrology was simply to gain familiarity with them ahead of time so as to um, have a greater sense of acceptance of not just the bad events but as well as the good events so then internal states aren't faded in that model no because, they are they are faded but then how can you gain acceptance um, how can you change your internal state 
from rejection to acceptance if that's already if that's already faded then you know you're just along for the ride if yeah we're talking like the way that you frame that is it's a practice to not change the external but to modify the internal state by practicing astrology um well the ideal state i think was that if you were an enlightened like stoic sage then you would accept all events that are going to happen whether they're good or bad with complete tranquility but that for normal individuals who are not like enlightened stoic sages which is most people that if you're going to have a really difficult traumatic event coming up like let's say the loss of a child or the death of a marriage partner at a certain age that having some idea of that might um, be helpful ahead of time so that you're not completely caught off guard and i would agree that that's true i would just say that you are you're locating the agency in your internal state rather than in control of external events there yeah i mean it does certainly it becomes more of an internalized thing and that's stoicism in general in terms of mastery over your internal states right so that means that internal states are then not fully subject to fate the way external events are well no because maybe they are because maybe there's some people that are more equipped at um dealing with that versus there's going to be more some people that are more inclined to saying no fuck the concept of fate like i'm going to go practice something else and i'll find anything i can to get out of this and that is probably something that you could see in the birth chart already in and of itself but that's where the magical tradition comes in because then there's automatically a whole group of people that say no like fuck whatever the astrology is i will do anything i can in my power whether it's something natural or whether it's something supernatural in order to change this potential event that is that they've been i've been told is coming up in my all future right, so we need to um, back up because that's not what any of the astrological ma uh, astrological magic texts claim what that you can um fully change your fate there there's very little talk of rewriting one's fate in the uh, in the picatrix for example it's not in agrippa what we see are um operations where if you do this this will happen um and it doesn't say and it says allah willing in the picatrix right so if you know if the divine is with you if god's on your side we don't have a like oh well if you've got this natal chart and this thing is happening and that's one of the things that's actually a little frustrating in practice about let's you know, let's focus on the picatrix because it's probably the most important single book of astrological magic mm -hmm. is that it doesn't talk about your natal chart very much and the picatrix right yeah it's just electional for talismans for specific outcomes of things right it's so if you want to do this or if you do this at this time or this kind of time with these ingredients you will get this result um i agree that earlier um in the hellenistic and roman world there's a huge um focus on this question of fate and you see um in several strands of gnosticism you have the archons um which determine life and the shape of things down here um and are, are identified explicitly with the planets and the whole uh the whole gnostic quest is to get outside of the archon's control right and so in that in that era you have a very explicit rejection of fate claims um but when we're looking at the practical like the the actual practice of astrological magic um and we look at the text where that is they're not um they're not engaging with the fate claims of hellenistic astrologers 
I mean, in the Greek magical text, though, they are like I have the, the papyri in the or... Greek magical papyri and translations. You can see magical rituals, and there's one that gets cited like all the time of this guy who is trying to make a petition and he's trying to use magical rituals in order to change his fate. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely something then that's more of a dominant theme in the in the Hellenistic tradition, the first mm-hmm. few centuries CE. And that's not just coming in from the magical tradition. It's the magical tradition responding to the astrological tradition, but we also see those that in the other religious traditions, like you mentioned, the Gnostics, um, but also in the Christianity itself is to some degree a response to that. Yeah, and that was the episode that I did with Nate Craddock like a few episodes ago, which was my realization over the past decade. The more and more I study ancient Christianity and Gnosticism within the context of what was happening in ancient astrology, realizing that a good motivating factor for people getting into Christianity was one of the claims that they made was if you're baptized, your birth chart is no longer in effect. You're no longer under the control of planets and your fate is no longer the same as it was when you were born, that you have a sense of freedom or liberation from fate. Salvation. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, So that's more dominant then. You're, You're right though that later in the tradition, once we have the emergence of horary Electional becomes more dominant, and so later um, the magical tradition becomes more focused on attempting to have specific magical magical rituals to have more localized specific outcomes about specific actions and their outcomes, mm-hmm. or especially the talismanic tradition and trying to create talismans that will have different effects on your life by controlling the or or capturing the powers of specific planets for different reasons mm-hmm. and that's what we see come up in the in the picatrix yeah and that's really what's pra- when we talk about practicing astrological magic that's what the practice has been um i don't doubt that people were doing astrological magic earlier than that but we don't have a compendious record um of what they were doing we have fragments um, so in the Greek magical papyri, we have bits, some bits that are very astrological, a lot that have very little to do with astrology. Um, but the the working Bible <laughs> of astrological magic, which informs um, the perspective on that that you see in the Renaissance and you know up to up to now, especially now, because um, we've only had the Picatrix in English for about ten or so years. Yeah. And so um and here's that mat from the Greek magical papyri. It says it's just a little fragment, but it's from this long sort of um piece of papyrus where he's doing various magical rituals, but in part of it he says um he's he does some sort of incantation with different like vowels and then he says protect me from all of my astrological destiny, mm-hmm. destroy my foul oh, fate. fate. Yeah. Yeah. I know that one. Apportion good things for me in my horoscope increase my life even in the midst of many goods for i'm your slave and petitioner and have hymned your valid and holy name lord glorious one ruler of the cosmos of ten thousand names greatest nourisher apportioner serapis yep um so this is part of this is the earlier tradition where it's like hellenistic astrology is primarily practiced within the context of natal astrology and a largely overarching sense of like fate and predetermination coming from the Stoics. And that's where that initial debate that I was talking about was coming from in Zosimus, where he's citing like one tradition that's fully deterministic astrology and learn the future ahead of time to accept it. And there's another one though that's emerging that's 
learn your fate, but then try to figure out what you can change. And some of that might be in natal astrology, but then there's another tradition with authors like Dorotheus where they start using electional astrology to try to control the outcome of specific things. Like if you start a journey at this time, this will be the outcome versus mm-hmm. if you started on this astrological alignment, if, it will be this outcome. If, uh, if Yes, if Mars is configured to the waxing moon, when you begin the surgery, there will be excessive bleeding and great danger to the patient. Yeah, and, yeah, and so and that just to be clear, I, I absolutely agree with you that there's a huge concern with that during mm-hmm. the astrological era, and there are two big answers. Right, mm-hmm. and that there's a little bit of a veering off or splitting from that point. Yeah, well, and I think this is though where the magical tradition comes in, is because the magical tradition is the one as a separate entity where you then would start to have more overlap with the, let's say, the free will and the electional astrology side of the astrological tradition, who are looking for ways to, um, like you said earlier, um, like maximize their agency mm-hmm. to like increase their agency. At different points and times, and that's where you start getting an overlap between the astrological and the magical traditions, and that really coalesces several centuries later in the, you know, main surviving text we have, which is the Picatrix, which is just a book uh, with lists and lists of astrological rules for different types of of elections, basically, right? Yeah, it's well, it's lists of different projects from different sources, and then it's interspersed with commentary on how this, you know, how to think about all of this. So can you give an example or like what are some examples of different magical elections in the Picatrix? Uh, or like so, a talisman or Yeah, so one I'll, I'll give an example of a species. Okay. Right. So one species would be so um at a time where um you so I'll I'll just use Jupiter as an example where um Jupiter meets the electional criteria, right? Which will be um, almost uh, Jupiter on either the midheaven or the ascendant, and it's in its rulership or exaltation, and the moon is in a good place to support the operation. <clears throat> and we're in the planetary hour and uh, preferably day, and there are no malefic planets configured either to the moon or to Jupiter to interfere with that. Um, then you will craft a ring of X metal um, and place within it a stone um, which is smoked with this particular incense and which has these figures um, carved within it. Mm -hmm. And then that will have X, Y, and Z effects, which Mm -hmm. as an astrologer, you're like, oh, those are good Jupiter things, right? Okay. And so that 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 that's one species of um, like a Jupiter talisman, yeah, uh, with a Jupiter ring, right? Um, and then there's little stuff. Um, but what 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 would then be the goal for that? It would say. be to obtain the results that are listed, um, which we would recognize as a uh, bringing a positive uh, bringing a positive Jupiter influence into the life. Okay, and and then there'll be you know for each. For each planet, there there's almost always more than one image and more than one project, mm. if you will. You know, dark arts and crafts. Um, and so, you know, be like, oh, do it this way with this image, 
of so one Jupiter image is of um, like a bearded king sitting on a throne, each corner of which is supported by an angel, mm-hmm. which is different from uh, the image of Jupiter riding a lion with a thunderbolt or spear in his hand. Mm-hmm. Um, one would be for you know victory in battle, et cetera, et cetera, and then the other, you know, I forget exactly. <laughs> I think the other one is just like to be richer and happier than you otherwise would be, would be my translation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's that's one species of, um, of operation. There are also non-talismanic operations within the Picatrix, um, where, and this is where the line between what I described earlier as thergic um, and astrological magic, where the line really blurs, mm-hmm. um, where there's a large section on petitions to the planets where on basically a good enough election for the planet rather than um, you know this ex- exquisite perfect election you would see for a ring, but on a good enough election for a planet, um, you dress up a certain way, you make certain offerings, and then you read certain conjurations um, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the deity of that planet or however you want to put that. And then you will get some form of apparition. You say, hey, give me this. Um, and then you get that. And so that's um, what's interesting about so that. Making it, there's a f- phrase for that. It's like making a petition to, to a deity. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a petition. Um, and so what's interesting about the language for that is that almost all of the petitions the, what they call the planets. So the petition, uh, it, there's a lot of them, but there's more than one for most planets. Mm. Um, but most of them start with OU, you know, O planet, um, who has these qualities. And there's a there's a basically a listing of the qualities of its motion and light and the various um, the various things in human affairs and in the animal world and the natural world that that planet influences. And then it ends with okay, and so your name is. And they will then say, okay, you were, I'll stick with Jupiter. I don't want to invoke Saturn, but, um, so, you know, oh, you were Jupiter to the Romans, you were Zeus to the Greeks, you were, um, and and then there's usually four or five and some of them aren't all entirely accurate. It's what the person who wrote that knew about those other cultures, Mm -hmm. but it's recognizing that there is a divine, uh, potency hosted within that planet that gets to make decisions um, that is called different things by uh, uh, by different people. Um, and so in, in Vedic astrology, or just in Vedic thought, those would be the, uh, the graha devatas, which are the gods of the planets, which are not, you know, they're relatively low ranked, but they're still powerful. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so we see this most clearly in like the Picatrix, which is the main yeah. All of that was straight from the Picatrix, main astrological book of magic, and then we occasionally have intersections. Then, like that's obviously one of the major intersections and confluences between the astrological tradition and the magical tradition in the Picatrix, where we see the electional astrological tradition and earlier authors like Dorotheus, because Dorotheus. Or, or like like Valens and Ptolemy, for example, are doing just natal astrology, or mm-hmm. Ptolemy does a little mundane, but they don't otherwise do magic. Mm-hmm. It's just straight astrological rules for interpreting birth charts and then making statements about what will happen in a person's life based on that. And and with yeah, agree. And with um, Firmicus, you get a lot of straight rules, but then he makes these asides that that show a familiarity with um, 
ritual work, for lack of a better term, and a yeah. Uh, so you know, as I've said before, in the deck, he's talking about the decans, and he's like, "Yep, these are the rules for interpreting decans. If a planet's its own decan, it has a strength um, similar to to being in its own sign, et cetera, et cetera." And he's like, "Oh, and by the way." Um, all the Deccans um, are host to uh, tremendously powerful intelligences. And then we were talking about this the other day in the context of divisional charts in Hellenistic astrology. And then each of those Deccans has uh, uh, has three spirits, which have X amount of powers. And then he's like, yeah, and we're not going to talk about that. And in another place, he does name the, uh, he does give a divine or daimonic name, not demonic, but daimonic um, names that hor- that correlate to each of the uh, the decans, and so that shows a uh, we could say a spirit model uh, of the sky, or a, in a belief uh, a belief or an interaction, a way of interacting with s- at least certain parts of the chart um, that is uh, founded on the idea that there are uh, intelligences hosted there, which we can have some meaningful interaction with. Sure, and I'm I know I'm sure he was drawing on some different parts of the tradition, or especially the Egyptian tradition, where maybe that was more relevant, like the Egyptian tradition where they were using the rising or culminating of decans to time different religious rituals at night. Yeah, that's pretty Egyptian. But that being said, but Firmicus otherwise, though, in his philosophical sections is one of the most like overtly stoic um, astrologers and saying that everything is predetermined and that you can't change anything. So it's like even though if he's influenced by that earlier tradition, he's still taking it in the characteristically Hellenistic fashion of predetermination in terms of natal astrology. Yeah, I, I would say that um, it's a little incoherent. And as much as you'll hear me talk about Firmicus, um, I don't, um, I don't think that Firmicus is great, and we should do things like Firmicus all the time. I don't treat him as a model. I, I think he's really interesting. Because you see a lot of different pieces show up in his text, yeah. um, and you know, we we certainly can't praise Firmicus for consistency because not too much uh, later, after uh, petting the thesis, um, he goes and converts to Christianity and uh, ha- and is a, a powerful advocate uh, of this new salvific model, which in and condemns. Um, you know, pagan practices like astrology. Yeah, really viciously like attacked um, pagan authors, especially authors like Por- Porphyry and others. Once he converted to Christianity, and he becomes at the end of the day, he was a Roman lawyer. Sure. Yeah. Well, and he is very over the top in his prose, pretty much the entire time. But anyway, so those are examples of natal astrology, though, and its predeterministic tendencies in the Hellenistic tradition, but. In Dorotheus, we do have the start of the electional tradition, at least as far as the textual evidence is concerned. Dorotheus is one of the oldest electional texts that we have that's largely still intact. Yeah, it's, and it's a really, I, I would just, for students of astrology, it's a great introduction to elections. Yeah, well, it's literally the introduction, it's the original introduction to elections from the first century CE, from probably about 75 or so CE. And then that book ended up being translated into a bunch of different languages like Persian and Arabic, and then influencing virtually all subsequent traditions of electional astrology from that point mm-hmm. forward. And but, I would just add, you can see the Firmic, or Firmicus, um, Dorotheus's like first two paragraphs on how to do elections, that's right there in the Picatrix. Look at, look at, look at the Ascendant, look at the Moon, et cetera, et cetera. It's, that's all right there in the Picatrix. Sure. And, and so, but, so Dorotheus, though, in the first century, it's just pure electional astrology, which is just using astrology and saying if you 
start something at this time with this astrological configuration when the ascendant and the ruler of the ascendants in this sign and the moon is applying to these planets, this will be the outcome. Or if you want this outcome, then you should start it under this alignment of planets. And he does it for different topics, like if you want to get married, if you want to build a house, if you want to start a journey, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and sometimes he gives um, good, bad, better, best, terrible um, parameters. Right. Yeah, and some of them are retrospective, and it's something people because in modern times we we call it electional, but they in the Hellenistic tradition they just called it catarchic astrology, which just means inceptional. So it included not just the proactive picking of events coming up in the future, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but also the retrospective. Just if something's already started and you want to know how it turned out, look at the alignment of the planets at the moment it began, and then you can issue predictions about. What will happen in its future? Right, like a, a a practical example of that would be like when we look at the incorporation chart of a business, right, to figure out whether we want to invest our money in that business over the coming year or not. Yeah, so it's not until so that's just electional astrology or just astrology though, and it's not until later when we once we get to the Picatrix, which is like eighth or ninth century CE, although it's drawing on earlier magical and astrological traditions, probably from Haran and like their surrounding yeah, areas. We don't have a dating on the fragments that are reproduced within the Picatrix. We know when they were assembled into that volume, but we don't necessarily know when the pieces that were assembled were written. Okay. But sometime in the medieval period, at least, the book in its form that it's in today comes together. Oh, yeah. And I, I've heard later, I've, I've heard usually early 11th is what I know is popular among scholars, might be late 8th, late. Uh, I, I haven't heard a good case for earlier than early 9th. Okay. Um, but the, so that's one of the major times then when astrology and magic intersect. Mm -hmm. um, but then we have other times then it can diverge again in the sense that there's later authors in the later medieval or early Renaissance tradition that are just doing astrology, and there's some mm -hmm. authors that are just doing magic, and it's sort of separate. But then we have other mm -hmm. major convergences of astrology and magic where it keeps going in and out. Like some, who are some of the later instances of major astrologers that are also practicing magic? Well, you can't not talk about John D. John D. Okay. No, I and as far as just the pattern that you're pointing out, I think that that's. We can we can follow that forever, um, and even if we're looking at um, what fits in that broad definition of astrology, but isn't this system that predates the that Hellenistic synthesis? Um, we know that Hellenistic astrology is drawing on Mesopotamian and Egyptian uh, 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 sky Earth uh, correlations, mm -hmm. and that those were um, even though we don't have it in explicit detail. Um, what we do have, we know that they were um, there was a strong ritual, magical context for those things. Sure, yeah, that's and a good so, point that we and, could get into. And I wish I, if I was more versed in like Mesopotamian astrology, we could definitely get more into that. Where there are, because astrology was one of the forms of divination in Mesopotamia, out of many that there were sometimes astrology was sometimes acting on its own, but sometimes was tied in with the ritual and religious context in Mesopotamia, which include things like that we would classify as magic. Yeah. I mean there, you know, there's a period in um 
in Mesopotamian astrology and magic and religion where the uh, the planets were uh, approached as gods or as host to gods, mm-hmm. um, which looks a lot like the petition structure that shows up in the Picatrix. And it's important to note that the, the Picatrix um, comes out of Haran and that Haran, which is basically, it was right over, it was right just barely into the caliphate empire and just over the the border from um the uh, eastern roman empire the byzantine empire and that it was a, actually a place where there were um Mesop- there were survivals of much earlier mesopotamian uh, magical religious practices mm-hmm. that were going on up until the 11th century um the the temple of the moon was still active there and so that's um whether whether there's a technical contribution there, there's absolutely a paradigmatic contribution to the Picatrix as well as a an approach to celestial phenomenon sure. contribution. But you know, you see, uh, for example, the the earliest um, the earliest uh, point where the Deccans show up is they're on the coffin lids of pharaohs two thousand years before we have any astrological texts, mm-hmm. and so we see. Um, uh, a, a you know a division of the sky and a recognition of what's in that um, part of the sky being mobilized or employed for magical means um, way before we have any of this stuff. So I mean, we could even say that the um, <clears throat> in terms of this sort of weaving in and out that some of the um, some of our early astro uh, Greco-Roman Hellenistic astrological te- texts represent a divergence of some of those things, a divergence of those two strands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that brings us to the point, which is just, for me, um, it's okay. And astrology can't, part of the point of all that was that astrology can be practiced outside of a context of magic just on its own and can be a perfectly valid uh, technical practice as well as philosophy on its own that's independent from magic. And um, while there are occasional overlaps, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to practice magic or that you have to contextualize it in a quote-unquote magical worldview in order to practice astrology well, per I think se. you need a worldview that according to a modern materialist would seem very magical to uh, validate astrology at all. Sure. Um, simply, you know, um, even if even if it's something as mm, weak sauce as just synchronicity, um, which I don't love as an explanation because it's really just calling, it's really naming a phenomenon rather than analyzing it. But even if you're saying, "Yep, there's synchronicity." You're outside. You're already outside of a rationalist, materialist paradigm, and you'd be accused of magical thinking. Yeah, and that's true. Um, I guess I'd just say though that there's a difference between positing there's a correlation between celestial movements and earthly events for some reason that we may not fully understand, or for a mechanism that we may not fully understand, versus treating planets and celestial bodies as as gods or in terms of like propitiating them and treating them as intelligences and things like that is a separate conceptual model to me that is different and has a markedly different orientation towards the world 
Well, it, it's. Um, I mean, I realize there's overlaps, and I realize yeah, there. And not a lot of there are a lot of Stoics. Um, you know, Stoic philosophy didn't mean that a person was a materialist, mm. and it was about what you could control and what you couldn't, and then what was the right way to approach. Uh, life in order to obtain, you know, what was the right way to approach life based on what's real? Mm -hmm. um, but they didn't say, oh, ghosts aren't real. Like that's the, you know, you, <laughs> uh, or like the, you know, it, you, you get an overlap of uh, Aristotelian Platonic philosophy with Stoicism. And Plato is very, uh, uh, Plato and especially the Platonists are very clear that the, um, uh, that the, um, planets and also stars and also the rivers, et cetera, et cetera, um, are host to some form of intelligence. But that doesn't that doesn't change whether or not you know you can still say yeah. And there's all this fate, and it doesn't. You can ask Jupiter, and Jupiter might have opinions, <laughs> but Jupiter's not going to change. Um, it's not going to change your fate, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I mean, let's just bring it up to modern times and turn the discussion fully towards now and and the problem of now, which is, or the problem and my ambivalence over it, which is just I've devoted my life for the past twenty years to astrology, and I've been entirely focused on that study with the incidental study of philosophy and history and everything else that's necessary to go along with that and support that. Uh, but uh, magic hasn't been part of my study, and I see it as sort of something that's there um, that I could study at some point. But it's almost like a technique or something that I I just haven't gotten to yet. Like if you hadn't studied primary directions or something like that, I realize it's obviously much broader than that, and there's a whole philosophy and and other types of practices that go along with it. But it's not something that's drawn my attention or that I've been interested in and I've been capable of practicing astrology independent of that. So part of the interesting place that I find myself in in the revival of magic is, uh, and to whatever extent we've promoted it on the podcast, has just been the revival of something that I have no connection to at this point in time. And while I might at some point in the future, I don't know what my relation is to that now. Um, yeah, yeah. Let, let me uh, just grab a few pieces of that. Sure. Um, so you described it as like, well, I don't know, like as a technique. And obviously that's, you know, that's not, ex you don't think it's just like one move. Yeah. But I, I think that's actually really useful in a certain way. Okay. Um, especially in regard to astrological magic. Yeah. So like I said before. The well, well, especially to the extent that you were defining it the way you were defining it at the beginning as the attempt to sort of... Um, you you act and then there's a result. But yeah. The the middle is mysterious. Right. So, in regard to, I'm going to try to stick with astrological magic, right? Because there's a lot of magic that's just in other categories. Um, but with astrological magic, starting with the Picatrix or centering on the Picatrix, mm -hmm. there's a lot of do this at this time and then you will get this species of result. Mm -hmm. And so that is very practical. In orientation, yeah, like right? a and, like an election or a technique. It is an election. I mean, yeah, um, and there's you know, yeah, there's there's a lot to it, right? Because um, it's not just the timing. There's the ritual action, the understanding of the material, blah blah blah, right? But um, that's very useful, and I would say necessary to um, point out because there's a lot of magic, especially the bulk of the magic, um, the bulk of what dominated the 
discourse on magic in the 20th century in English-speaking countries was what we could call lodge magic, which comes out of the late 19th century, early 20th century, Golden Dawn and the OTO, where the primary goal of magic and magic in general is um, described explicit or almost explicitly within an initiatory framework with practical stuff being mentioned somewhere at the side. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you, that's, and the, and sure. that but initiatory framework is, um, we could say, uh, very non practical in orientation. Yeah. Um, and very, uh, uh, very tied to certain viewpoints on what reality is and what the good is. Whereas the, the Picatrix, even the larger sort of paradigmatic framing, it, it's much more, well, this is how this can work rather than this is the entire universe and these are your ethics and this is what you should be doing within the universe. The Picatrix in the astrological tradition is very um, uh, results oriented or very how to do an action and get a predictable result. Yeah, and that is everything that astrological magic has become in the past couple of years that's become popularized in the astrological community is doing specific things at certain times in order to achieve certain outcomes. Yep. And the, and again, that's just important to it's important to define that because you will find other other magics uh, or other magical traditions that have a wholly different or even opposite orientation. Okay, well, let's put those aside for now and let's just focus on the astrological tradition for the duration of this because I know we've been doing this for a while. So Can I want to make sure we. I would really like to stop and pee and get a cup of coffee. Okay, let's take a brief break, and we'll be right back. All right. All right, let's start again. So uh, in this segment, we're basically just getting through outlining what was supposed to be the point of the first half, which was outlining my reservations as somebody that's coming from just astrology and is still just doing astrology and both didn't have any background in the magical tradition prior to or during that, but also hasn't done pretty much largely anything with astrological magic at this point. And I'm largely still content with that. Like I don't have any sense of urgency right now. And that's partially because so much of my philosophy of astrology has been trying to learn and understand the future. And that just the process of doing astrology and seeing it work and learning about it is a lifetime thing in and of itself. Like there's so much you could do there. Uh, you could spend the rest of your life just studying that, or even just studying one small portion of astrology without ever getting to everything yeah i mean if you were if your um if your goal was to thoroughly deeply and as perfectly as a human mind could just understand astrology you would almost certainly fall short right right and so um i i have been a co-practitioner of astrology and magic for 20 years um, and for me, the overlap is very important and interesting and a key part of my practice. Um, it's not that astrology is crap without magic, and it's not that there that if you're not an astrologer that your magic is crap, mm -hmm. right? There, uh, if you're trying to do astrological magic, then you by nature need to be pretty good at both. But there's lots of uh, there's lots of what do you say value to astrology outside of that Venn diagram overlap. Yeah, and so that brings up my my three basic like objections as I was trying to scribble them down really quickly and remember them in the break were um, one, 
what the public thinks and what the perception is of astrology on its own because astrology is already a field that is has a, its own problems and its own image issues in terms of its place in society currently in the present time without adding the additional baggage of magic uh, is one of my concerns well and, and that's a I think that's a historically validated concern. Yeah, we like Salem witch trial type situations. You mean, or or there's there are various um, periods of time where there would be legislation where magic was completely illegal, but astrology within certain parameters was licit. Yeah, as long as it was like natural or within the bounds of science, the science of the day. Right. Well, and didn't tread on in the field of like religion and other things like that. Right. But generally speaking, where we see legislation against these um, ninth house topics, mm -hmm. um, generally astrology does better legislation wise than magic does. Sure. And, you know, that's still an issue in terms of the practice of astrology and the weird legal footing that it has today, which is. Like right now in in the United States, at least, it's been doing okay for the past decade or two on free speech grounds. Um, it's not okay in the sense of it does not is not seen to have any scientific legitimacy, and therefore, at the present moment in time, without that, it has a sort of unsure footing in society that I always get nervous about because I feel like things could change pretty easily, especially if the astrologers really messed up or if there was some sort of incident. Where somebody used astrology really inappropriately or really stupidly, um, things could change pretty easily and pretty quickly. But maybe that's just my own like paranoia about that. Having seen past historical instances of astrology falling out of popularity and suddenly becoming illicit again at different points in history. So I I share that concern because it happens. Um, unfortunately, I don't see any way that we can keep. Every uh, like the some somebody somebody who is representing themselves as an astrologer or is an astrologer will inevitably say something stupid. <laughs> uh, I don't know, uh, you know, <laughs> unless um, we enact um, a nightmarish totalitarian control of astrology. I don't, and yeah. even then, I don't think there's any way to stop that. Sure, um, but no, I, I, I hear you. Um, there's a little bit of a like, hey, I like being able to do this for a living. I like. People being able to study this without it, you know, being um, a legal gray, legal gray area. Well, and also just I, I've always want like it always. Um, I felt like sucks that astrology doesn't have any intellectual respectability in modern society, and I, I want to see it because I think it's a valid phenomenon. I would like to see it have that again someday. I would like to see. Like a famous physicist or something who suddenly gets into astrology and says, "Hey, this is, looks like actually a valid property of nature that's going on here. Why don't we actually study it?" Well, that has happened, and um, he was um, uh, laughed out of the academy. Who was that? I forget. He wrote a book on it. Uh, it was this is maybe twenty some years ago. Um, but there, um, there are there are people within the academy who are interested in these things and think they're valid and they know to shut up about it. Yeah, well they have to keep it quiet because it's not publicly respectable. I mean Tarnas was the closest I feel like that we got to that in that he wrote his first book that became super popular and became 
core reading in universities, which is the passion of the Western mind. But then that was always just meant to be a precursor, like a footnote to the main book he was working on, which was Cosmos and Psyche. Mm -hmm. But that book, I mean, Cosmos and Psyche, even though it's been somewhat influential and it's brought some people into the field because it ends up in like the philosophy section of bookstores rather than just the relegated to the astrology shelves that are dwindling year by year. Right. Uh, Cosmos and Psyche still didn't have the impact, I don't feel like, on academia or on in the intellectual climate in its uh, attitudes towards astrology that I think he was intending, at least at this point in time. Yeah, it, it didn't, um, astrology has not become academically licit uh, as a result. Sure. So that's not a reason in and of itself to like keep magic separate from astrology or that it should, but it's something that I think about in terms of um so let me let me jump in. Mm -hmm. So I think as I said, historically, usually astrology does better in terms of acceptability than magic. I think we might be in a period where um that's actually reversed. You think um, magic is doing better, would do better right now than astrology? I, I think it might be doing better. I think the idea that there that we have some sort of hidden ability to that human beings have a hidden ability or or capacity to influence events seems to be more popular and more accepted um, even than astrology uh, is. If you look at the number of people who identify or interest who identify as witches or who are interested in you know what they're calling witchcraft, mm -hmm. but that's basically. Um, I have a hidden potency. Human beings have a hidden potency that can be educated um, to be more effective. That's incredibly popular, and we could even put, even though it's not part of the current cultural wave, we could put the you know ten, twelve years ago the um, um, the phenomenon of the secret sure. um, uh, in into that category, into that very broad category. Yeah, and that I think Americans in general. Um, because we live in a very um, competitive uh, environment, um, you know, are looking for any edge we can get, um, and that 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 makes the um, the that that very broadest possible category of magic more appealing. Um, and I, th uh, you know, I think that magic is doing it as well, if not better, than astrology right now. Even even at a time when astrology is doing great in terms of people's interest in it. Sure, maybe I, I don't know. Um, yeah, certainly, it, let's these say amongst, are, this is yeah, just observations. Let's say at least among, as amongst intellectuals, I don't think astrology is or magic is going to do is doing better than astrology per se. And astrology is certainly not at a high point with intellectuals at current point in time, but it's not necessarily going to be helpful. I mean, my other issues are a does it work, and that's something. That's where I invoke the technique thing, where I treat it like a technique because I don't know what its efficacy is, and I feel like it could go not knowing anything. I feel like it could go either way. I'm inclined because I'm sometimes more skeptical to. Uh, I'm I'm inclined because I'm like my entryway into astrology was through New Age stuff, mm. uh, circa like 2000, and I got into some books on Nostradamus that were very New Agey and incorporated. Just the whole gambit of you know different late twentieth century new age thinking and and different things that were supposedly possible in that context. Mm -hmm. uh, I was going through a pretty heavy like Neptune transit at the time. I think it was like Neptune squaring my son, 
while Neptune was going through my first house through my rising sign. Oh, and so it was hitting all sorts of planets. Yeah, I was hitting all sorts of planets, and I was also more open to all those things. But also, once I started coming out of that transit, I realized that so much of what was in those books was bullshit, to put it uh, politely. Mm -hmm. And um, astrology was one of the only things that I came out of that transit feeling like was still real and was still like valid in terms of some of that stuff. And it made me more skeptical towards a lot of the claims that were being made by people in the New Age movement in general. Mm -hmm. So that instead of just being completely open, open and accepting of any claim that anybody would make about metaphysical or spiritual capabilities or anything else, while not immediately rejecting it, I would often adopt a much more careful modest uh sort of uh, attitude towards yeah. things like that careful careful before approaching them until i had my own personal investigations and experience so i'm an astrologer and i've been in astrology for 20 years so i'm not stupid enough at this point to not investigate something and reject it out of hand before investigating it anymore because i see so much of the time that is the the problem and the downfall of most skeptics is they honestly don't investigate most of the things that they are against. Mm -hmm. They just get the sort of cliff notes version from somebody that holds a position of authority that they think is respectable, like usually a leading skeptic like James Randi or whoever the other modern like skeptic is that they're following, and they'll sort of repeat the same talking points that seem like good objections on the surface level mm -hmm. um but that's about as far as they'll go in terms of understanding the subject before rejecting it so in seeing the da the downsides to that i'm not going to be you know adopting a similar approach to something i haven't investigated myself yet but i do see that it could go either way in terms of some portions of it could be valid and other portions of it maybe could not be valid yeah yeah and that's just responsible thinking mm -hmm. um so let me let me respond. I think there's a good parallel there. Um, so I was never interested in new age stuff um, because it always just smelled wrong to me. Okay. Um, and so um, within the new age, you don't have you don't have the you, there. You might find or you will find within new age material um, the belief that it is possible to influence life events through mysterious means, right? You will also find the belief that it is possible to read uh, at least portions of the future through the relationship between heaven and earth, right? So magic and astrology. Um, however, if someone says, yep, you can read the future through the sky and provides you an insufficient technical education in astrology, even though they are correct in that that is possible, you will not be able to do it without without the technical methods to do that. Mm -hmm. And so what I see when I look at a lot of um, New Age stuff is that the that belief that it is possible to influence events through mysterious or ritual means, that is correct. Um, what I see is a massive deficiency of the know-how of how to do that. And it, for me, um, I've, uh, you know, my, my early, uh, forays into magic, we're trying to figure out how, how, you know, what do you do? Right. Um, it obviously wasn't just willing really hard. Mm -hmm. Right. And so 
Well, I mean, in New Age stuff, sometimes there's truth claims or claims to be able to do things that aren't necessarily true. And that, that was one of the th issues that I ran into. Well, I, I think there are, um, as, I, that, as I said, I was never real. I was never, I never had a New Age phase because mm -hmm. there was so much untrue that uh, I just turned me off. See, I didn't get that because what I came into it at like 14 or 15 and it was my first exposure to all of those things. And I didn't have the conceptualization that somebody could write an entire book based on a premise where they're actually like making up a story or lying. Like the premise of this book was that it was a regressive hypnotist that took somebody into a regressive hypnotism session and it turned out that they were like a student of Nostradamus's in the past life. And through him, they went about um, uh, sort of interpreting all of his prophecies in a modern context to refer to all of these various things. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't have the understanding at that age that somebody could just like make up stuff like that. Well, and also, um, even if the person had perfect recall of that life with Nostradamus, it doesn't mean that Nostradamus was right about everything, and it doesn't mean that that student understood everything personal uh, perfectly. But I, that that's a little aside. The point I was just trying to make is that in my experience, just like with astrology, um, there is a, a huge um, knowledge component mm -hmm. um, and, and technique component to doing magic that is effective on an external level. Um, and a big uh, there, there was a big turning point, it wasn't turning, but a big upgrade point for me um, was um, when I when I got the first translation of the Picatrix into English, which was the Ouroboros Press version before um, Christopher Warnock and Michael Greer's um, Picatrix came out. I'll bet like I got it and I was like, okay, it's astrological magic. How does it work? Because I had been trying to use the pieces of astrological magic that are present in the Golden Dawn tradition, some of which are gripping, um, in order to do astro magic. And I'd had um, some interesting experiences and some on-off success and failure, but it was very inconsistent. Okay. Um, but the Picatrix supplied the technical parameters and also a number of the, the the way that the ritual should be structured and the the right way to um, to put together a petition. You know all of the pieces. And after that, um, I got um, extremely consistent results. And so there was a big upgrade when I was like, oh, this is how you actually do it, rather than trying to piece together things that were connected. I mean, but did you go into magic, whatever your introduction was, thinking that magic is definitely a legitimate phenomenon that clearly already exists in the world and I'm going to find find it? No. Okay. Because that's the question as an initial starting point was, is this even a thing or is this not a thing that actually even exists in the world? No, I'm just interested in, uh, I've always been interested in mysterious things, um, in what is, I'm, I'm just interested, I was interested in the corners of knowledge um, in my culture. Like, I don't know, is astrology real? Mm -hmm. uh, it took me probably five years of doing astrology. It took me literally predicting a death to admit finally that astrology was real and I should totally take it seriously. Okay. And I had um, exactly the same experience with magic. Yeah, I, but I mean, that's a valid, I think that's a valid orientation to come into the field of astrology with, for example, 
And I think it's a, it's a healthy orientation to come into the field of a question of like, is this a valid phenomenon or not? Mm -hmm. And that's why on the, the podcast, I'm often trying to frame almost every episode with the initial assume that the the audience mem the audience members know nothing about this topic let's take it from the very start all the way through the intermediate and advanced steps on this topic mm -hmm. um, because I'd like to be able to allow people to come into the field and give them a view of astrology where if this could be a valid phenomenon and this is what it looks like if it is a valid phenomenon and here's a perspective on this that you may not have seen before um, but but what it would take to get somebody from point A of this may not be a valid phenomenon to hey this actually may be a, a property in nature mm -hmm. that I didn't know about or I didn't think could exist but for some weird reason it seems like it does. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would say that um, like if I think back to myself uh, at nineteen or twenty when I was um, tentatively poking these things to see how they reacted. Mm. Um, I think that what you can do with words and what you can do with arguments is you can show the possibility, uh, and you can show the validity of investigation for myself. It was only through, um, validation in, in my experience, um, over and over and over and over again, to the point that I couldn't refute it with both astrology and magic that convinced me. Sure. And that's not something you can do for other people. You can I can tell you about my experiences, but it's not the same it's not the same for somebody to tell you about their experiences as to see it for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um and what's interesting is the Picatrix in the way that it refers to the various um projects you can do, it uses experimental language over and over again. It says, you know, this is an experiment you can do. For this experiment, get a, you know, get a ruby, get a, you know, get a, a, a compile an incense comprised of these plants, pick a time like this. But it's, you know, these are the experiments, and then you do the experiments under these parameters, and then you see what happens. Sure. Um, and not all magic, though, in your view, works or at least not all magic is equally efficacious, right? Is there some magic or some schools where you feel like that that's not a thing or that that's not real or doesn't work or I don't know what they're doing, but it's not a legitimate thing? Well, I would say if it doesn't work, then it's not really magic. If it doesn't work, it's not really if magic. If it says that it if it says that it does something and it doesn't do that, then it's not really that thing. Okay. Just like if there's a school of astrology that says that it can predict events and fails miserably, mm. then that's not really astrology. That's something else. Yeah. I mean, I think there are um, individuals occasionally that are, will either pretend that they're astrologers, but not like if they're trying to rip somebody off and they're, they're mm. trying to pretend that they're, they say they're astrologer, but they're like a psychic or something or, or they're just megalomaniacal and delusional. Yeah. Which, which actually, Contrary to the claim of most skeptics, because most skeptics think that all they'll they'll try to allege, not really knowing an astrologer, is that all astrologers are just swindlers or using cold reading or trying to rip you off. But in reality, when you come into the field, the amount of people that you meet uh, that's that you could actually classify in that way that's legitimately trying to use astrology to rip people off or, off or is using cold reading is actually surprisingly low if you're coming at it from that perspective under yeah. that assumption. I don't think I've ever met someone at an astrological conference that I would put in that category. I would say 
at the right, very they, they worst, don't go to conferences. People like that don't go to because they would get called out. Yeah, they would um, get, well, because they're also just not professionals. They're not moving in professional circles for the most part. Yeah, I would say the very worst case is like I think some people who are astrologers are also kind of shady. Sure, but um, but that's uh, that's an entirely different thing than being a charlatan. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, as far as um, what I will say is that some. Um, there are some uh, magical traditions that are very focused on um, getting clear results, and there, you know, the culture of those traditions has a very clear pass fail um, when you talk about an operation, or like, yeah, you accomplished it, but it did this weird side thing, mm -hmm. right? Let's go back and think about why that happened, and then there are some magical traditions that have. Um, very uh, that have initiatory aims, and that if you want to accomplish practical things, then um, then a group with initiatory aims is that's not that can that's not very concerned technically um, uh, and paradigmatically with getting visible results. Is not you don't study with them if you want you know visible results. Like the as I said earlier, I started with the Golden Dawn stuff. And there are some pieces of that that I still use in practical work, um, but it was very difficult to figure out how to do practical work within those parameters. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily think it's because that's fake and bad. It's that's not what that's aiming at. And so, it, it not all very uh, magical traditions, just like um, uh, variations within astrology or schools within astrology, aim at different things. And you should, you know, be aware of what they're aiming at, and if that's what you're aiming at, because they'll give you methods to hit that mark, not the other marks necessarily. Okay. Uh, well, I guess at some point, maybe in the future, I don't have any sense of real ultimate huge sense of urgency to do it at this time. But the investigation of whether magic is a legitimate phenomena is something I have to do at some point. But I that I may, might do, but I don't have a sense of urgency. And also I still treat it like there's a lot of techniques in astrology where I feel the same way or even branches of astrology that I just don't specialize in or don't have an interest in specializing in like medical astrology or something like that. Mm -hmm. Because one of the issues with medical astrology is I see it as such a huge complicated field because you need to also probably ideally be pretty good at medicine in order to practice that effectively, and that's a whole field right. unto itself. Well, if if the uh, the chart says you're going to have trouble with your liver next year, what does the liver do? Right. If you you need to know what the function of the liver is and its relationships with the other organs and processes, or else you're like, yep, liver bad, liver bad. Sure. 2021. Right. Or <laughs> um, another uh, like there's there's certain time lord techniques. Like when I got into Hellenistic astrology, I learned. So several of them reading through Valens and, and started messing with different ones, but there were two that really stood out that seemed to work really well for me, which were annual perfections and zodiac releasing. So I decided to focus on and specialize in those, but there were other timelord techniques that I just sort of left it for somebody else to figure out and specialize in and figure out how that timelord technique works or if there's a way to make it work more effectively than I was able to get it to. Like Fedaria. Um, yeah, Fedaria is a good one that some people use and think works really well. That's just not something I've done much with. Or Quarters of the Moon, Valens actually introduces that technique before he does Zodiac releasing. Mm. There's astrology is so vast that nobody can master everything. You end up having to pick some parts of the system to specialize in and become good at and to focus on because you only have so much life and so much time. Mm -hmm. 
So um, yeah, at some point I might, my only other reservation is um, possible drawbacks or possible dangers in doing so. It seems like an area where there, while there could be some advantages, like if you, if it, let's say hypothetically it was real and you, you messed up, um, it could have some major drawbacks or some major harmful uh, sort of side effects that you might not anticipate that could be pretty problematic. Yeah. Well, so one, um, I would say it is real. And because it's, you know, and so it's a little bit on, I would say that is, uh, so I appreciate the careful approach to truth claims. I think there's a lot of validity in that. There is also, if you are going to start doing practical magic, especially if you're going to start doing astrological magic, treating it as if it's not real until it proves itself to you has specific dangers mm -hmm. um, because you're dealing with, if you're dealing with the power to shape events or to make things go one way or another, then you have the power to make things go worse as well as make them go better. Mm -hmm. And so um, <laughs> for me and everybody else I know who's you know put the the solid decade in to astrological magic since we've had the Picatrix, you know, we've been doing our experiments and um, comparing notes, um, we've all blown ourselves up. Uh, we've all done things. Um, and what's more common than just blowing yourself up, although that's certainly a possibility, is you know, you make you make a Spica talisman where you're like, yeah, Jupiter's on Spica, but I can, Jupiter's so great, I can ignore the fact that Mars is squaring it. Um, and so, you know, you, you anchor that configuration, you know, you, you give it a body in whatever gem, um, and then you wear that around and then you break your leg, mm -hmm. right? In exact, <laughs> um, like I made a, I made a thing, I don't know, in 2009, um, that, um, the the goal was to <clears throat> uh, was to boost my business right um and uh you know to to make what i was doing more interesting and approachable and to get more clients um and i was super broke at the time and because my uh, my 10th house is aries i involved mars and aries mm. in this there was some other stuff it wasn't just mars okay um and so you put mars in the talisman in a day chart by transit in your chart yeah, and it had other things, and it it accomplished exactly what I wanted it to do. However, um, <laughs> what I started noticing is when I wore it, one, I would start sweating profusely within about a minute of putting it on, mm -hmm. uh, and two, um, when I was in public places, um, I would get um, much more hostile reactions from passerbys than I normally would. Okay, um, and particularly, this was particularly evident. Um, I was in Los Angeles at the time, and um, whenever I, I would, homeless people would threaten to fight me um, almost every time I wore that out. Mm -hmm. And I never had the experience of walking by a homeless person and them trying to fight me. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you're in an area with a high homeless rate, people yell weird shit at you sometimes, but I never had someone try to fight me before. Mm -hmm. And that happened multiple times while wearing that. Right. And so that that's not, I didn't blow myself up. 
um, it accomplished the primary um, the primary goal of what that talisman was supposed to do, but it did a bunch of weird other stuff too. Right. So one of the potential downsides could be unintended consequences if you start like bringing energies into your life that, and messing with. I think that's a with, really good way to put it. Uh, messing with parts of your birth chart um, by making something a, a temporary or a permanent part of your life, you could have unintended consequences that you. Don't anticipate ahead of time. Yeah, and I, I, I have a, a friend who's um, put in the time to become quite good at this, um, and she literally made a thing and um, broke her leg like the first time she wore it. Mm. She'd never broken her leg before. Sure, and it was in very. It was um, the damage to the leg in retrospect when we looked at when she looked at the electional chart is like oh yeah. It's the sixth lord is Mars. It's in a hard superior square to the point being um, being activated. Of course, there was physical damage, mm -hmm. and so so that's one of the things is like a proviso is you're not you can't go into something like that just fucking around, which is kind of the same with medical astrologists. One of the things I'm nervous about dealing too much with that, even though there's some parts of that that you can certainly study sort of idly without causing too many problems, but yeah, but certainly this more than any other area in terms of technical knowledge or things that you might incorporate, there could be serious um, responsibility that comes with it. Yeah, it's um, it's not um, it's not just serious repercussions. Yeah, when it's just it's something you have to think about. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, let's say we could take an let, let me take an example of something positive that could have problematic um, uh, issues associated with it. So let's say we make something um, that's very benefic, um, and the one of the one of the effects of wearing it is that you become absurdly confident, mm -hmm. right? And so generally, you know, human beings prefer feeling confident to anxious and afraid, right? So like that's a subjective positive. Um, however, you know, you you might make mistakes um, by being absurdly confident all the time. Right, and so it, it it did. If you make a thing that's supposed to be, you know, that's supposed to give you uh, to uh, support, uh, you know, support your faith in yourself, et cetera, et cetera, and you succeed, and there aren't side effects, even that success um, can have, you know, it's a tool to use, um, and that especially comes up if you're dealing with um, um, a talisman uh, for uh, Mars or Saturn, right? Because as we know from astrology. Like the best possible Mars will still accomplish things which are favorable to the native in a rough Marsy way, mm -hmm. right? And so for my for the the Mars Saturn things I have, I would never dream of wearing those around all the time. Like Mars is to be better, you know, in a sense, Mars is to be better at Mars situations. But um, preferable to that is to not be in a conflict situation, mm -hmm. right? And so. You know, when I teach people in uh, the people that I've taught astrological magic, and to the degree that I've taught it, one of the things I say from the very get go is, as you're learning, work with the benefics because benefic mistakes um, have less consequences than malefic mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, but and this is an issue. This is one of my concerns with how I see the idea of astrological magic being received. Right, because um, we, we were going to touch on that. In the revival of astrological magic over the past couple of years, even as a proponent and as one of the people who's 
caused that in some ways, you also have some of your own reservations. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I would say reservation one is just that if it's power, then it's not inherently friendly or unfriendly. It's how you do it. It's right? not, not inherently good. Yeah, if you if there's a uh, an ability to do, then there's an ability to you know you, it's the power to fuck things up as well as the power to make things go better, and so that that requires, in my experience, um, you know, careful study and do a thing. Did it work? At one, did it work? Mm -hmm. If it worked, did it work the way you wanted it to? How did? Let's say you're working with let, let's just use Spica, right? If you want, if you did a Spica working in order to accomplish a certain goal, not only did it accomplish that goal, what was the the route to accomplishing that goal, and were there weird byproducts to that? And what about the election and the way you constructed the ritual and the talisman um, created those weird byproducts? And what would you do next time, right? It's not simply asking the planets to do you a favor and then they they're just like sure buddy mm -hmm. right it's not that simple um you can fuck yourself up so and, and your experience is that most everybody you know that's been doing it for long enough has messed up and that's part of the learning process but they've messed up to varying degrees everybody okay because that's part of just the learning process i mean that's part of the learning process and learning electional astrology just on its own even if you're just doing elections in general is you know, you're always trying to place the benefics prominently, but you've got to place the malefics somewhere. Yeah, and depending on where <laughs> you put them, like that's going to be the area where you you're going to have problems. And sometimes, as you're learning, you may not learn. You have to learn. Um, you know what what is acceptable or what you can get away with versus mm -hmm. what is just a deal breaker. And yes. uh, just observing that process of observing. Uh, you know, your inception and what the outcome is is part of just the long-term learning process. Yeah, and that's um, just to temporarily bounce back to astrology and magic and what's interesting to me about both these things. Both astrology and magic were a way of investigating the mysterious in a way where I could get results and data and then think about it and go back and do another experiment. Mm -hmm. Whether the experiment was reading, making a prediction based on a birth chart or doing a ritual to get a result. Mm -hmm. um, both both give you feedback. Um, so another reservation or another issue that I've seen arise since more people are interested in this is the is not under uh, is um, conflating astrological magic with um, remediation. And so one form that the one very common form that this takes is someone says, "Oh, my Saturn." My Saturn, oh, my Saturn hurts. It's giving me all sorts of trouble. Um, I'm going to do a petition to Saturn. Okay, and that's um, that's not uh, th that's not how it works. Okay, um, that uh, <laughs> so because a petition can be more of like an invoking of Saturn in it, your it, life it's rather than absolutely an invocation. Mm -hmm. um, so there are so an amplification. Yeah, there are various addresses to the planets that you find in various texts. And some of them, uh, and uh, we could say that there are varying degrees of of hot and cold or arousing, and the um, the petition, uh, the petitions in the Picatrix are the hottest, most arousing um, orations that I've found. And so, when you arouse Saturn, it's to do Saturn things. Mm -hmm. And if you're like, "Hey, Saturn." I would like to live a, a life of ease and luxury. That's not what Saturn does. Mm -hmm. Saturn is like 
you know, uh, that's not what you ask Saturn for. You ask the planets what they are capable of bestowing, right? And that's, and we under, as astrologers, it's, there's not a difference in what the planets bestow in astrology versus astrological magic. The Picatrix says over and over and over again, don't ask the planets for what they don't do mm -hmm. and what they can't do in the election. You ask them for what they can do. And so if you put, let's put Saturn in Capricorn on the rising and then the moon in a supportive position to that in the day and hour of Saturn. And we're like, oh, Saturn, um, make my, uh, um, uh, will you please make sure that the flowers in my garden are the most beautiful in the land? Does Saturn and Capricorn in the first house bestow beautiful flowers? Like, right. no, <laughs> absolutely not. Sure. Um, if it's like, uh, I'm going to make this talisman, um, to like, I don't know, um, to keep out or, uh, to keep out or eliminate the various pests that might prey on my flowers, then mm -hmm. I could contribute to the goal of having beautiful flowers, but you don't ask Saturn for beautiful flowers. Sure. Um, and so you don't petition, you don't do petitions to the planets to make them go away. It actually does the opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I've always had a strong interest as an extension of electional astrology in just the idea of a strong belief that is, I feel like, come to be confirmed over and over again that the concept of birth charts does not just apply to the birth of individuals, but also to events. That when you start something, the alignment, like a major venture undertaking, the alignment of the planets and the cosmos at that moment will indicate something about the quality of what you're starting at that time as well as its future mm -hmm. and a sort of like intellectual interest then in sometimes when you start something major and bring it into your life that that chart for that thing starts interacting with yours in weird and interesting and important ways yes. and that's very similar to the very idea of like making a talisman or something and that the idea of making a talisman could just be an extension of electional astrology but that you're trying to deliberately bring a moment in time and and capture that moment in time and bring it into your life permanently mm -hmm. and the idea that that might bring certain um dynamics or or for lack of a better term like energies into your life permanently from that point forward yeah i just don't know i don't know what fully what the mechanism is underlying all of that and so that's one of the reasons well yeah, let me yeah and there again we're this is mysterious stuff it's astrology and magic right um but uh, so you said you said you know that 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 moment of how should we say creating an interaction between yourself and what's happening at a particular time and that's starting to um ping your own chart in its interaction with that time right that is something which is not written about in the picatrix but in the experience of doing astrological magic mm -hmm. is so consistently present there will be weird echoes of um, of the type of work that you did, usually in the week uh, in the week following. That aren't they're not like like so. Let's just um, let's move off of Saturn. Let's do Venus. Um, so you know, doing a you know you do a big Venus thing, and it has um, this specific goal. Um, but then there will just be weird Venus synchronicities um, that happen over the next week, and even weirder. Um, once you've locked down the election, because this is not an on, here's another thing. Astrological magic is not on the fly magic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, like it depends on elections, right? Okay. 
And so some people would be like, oh, you know, is there anything next week to help me get a job? Because I need to do some magic to get a job. Right. Astrological magic is not the tradition for doing that. Okay. Right. Um, maybe you could purchase a, a a thing that was made at the right time to get a job next week, but there's no election next week for making a thing to get you a job. Right. Mm -hmm. But once you, you know, once you've locked down the operation, when it's going to happen, and then there's a lot of prep. Um, and you know, you're starting to do your prep, you're designing, you're like, I'm going to do, uh, you know, I'm going to use this oration, blah, blah, blah. You'll start getting syncs, uh, uh, synchronicities of the nature of that planet leading into it. It's um, the experience of it is that there's like, a that planet shaped divot in your timeline. Mm -hmm. Um, and that you'll, you'll experience that, that change of angle. You'll start inclining towards it in the days leading up as well in the days following. Mm. But yeah, it's, you, you, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very, and again, I don't know anybody who's uh, done a lot of astrological magic who hasn't experienced that consistently. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that's a good time to say for, depending on how you're finding it, I mean, my incorporation of electional astrology may already fall under that category. And to the extent that I regularly use electional astrology in my life, I'm already incorporating some of those principles. Mm -hmm. And some of that is from a more just for the sake of knowing standpoint of if I you know, of having a certain outcome in mind of what I would like to achieve by certain things, and knowing that if I if I'm just paying attention to the astrological clock for that day, that if I start this action at this time, that this is going to be one of the likely outcomes, and these are going to be the positive sides, and these are going to be the negative sides. Versus if I wait two hours for this next rising sign, the negatives are going to shift to this part of my life, and the positives are going to shift to this part. Mm -hmm. And some of that is a. a more passive sense of just knowing the outcome or being able to anticipate it better and accepting that ahead of time. But in other instances, it is more of a, a deliberate act of, well, if I can push this even slightly in one direction rather than the other, then I should at least make the attempt to. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes seeing the positive results of that in the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is in and of itself just purely electional astrology, but if you wanted to, you could argue that I'm already doing some form of astrological magic in, in doing that. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Okay. I think that's accurate. I, yeah, very comfortable with that. Um, yeah, the experience of going hard on, a, on an election magically, uh, to me, feels like, an in, um, like a, a, a deep intensification of uh, of the experience of doing normal elections. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't feel like, a, uh, I mean, there are some things that are different, but there's a, a certain denting of time um, in a particular pattern um, that it's just, a, a, it's a deeper dent, um, but it's still, it's, it's a, the same category of experience. Let me give one example um, that I thought was really funny when um, I did some, uh, so I've worked with, um, uh, Tony Mack, uh, who's a gold, who's a jeweler, goldsmith, um, and astrologer. We've been doing talismanic projects for ten years now, mm -hmm. um, and I remember one of the earlier projects we did was when Saturn was in its exaltation in Libra, and um, I wanted, I wanted a pyramid cut uh, black onyx for the stone, mm -hmm. and uh, in preparation, the only person that he could find who could do that kind of cut on that stone was uh, this cranky old man 
who took like three times as long as anyone else uh, to do the work. Okay. <laughs> and so like, and so it was just, you know, and that was before, you know, like that, that of course that, of course it had to be the cranky old slow man mm -hmm. who cut the stone for the Saturn ring. Sure. And that he was the only option. And on a practical level, it would have been great to get somebody who could just whip it out so we could be ready earlier. Mm -hmm. But uh, of course it was the cranky old man who cut the Saturn stone. Right. Yeah, and I mean, that's really interesting because there's some, I think there's probably some way of conceptualizing astrology and, and even electional astrology in that approach that's purely um, just time-based in this notion that there's like time has qualitative properties and there's different moments in time in which certain qualitative properties are emphasized more or less or certain, let's say, archetypes are emphasized more mm -hmm. or less. And a way that you could intellectualize that either in the magical tradition sense or either in a, a religious sense in terms of different divinities and however you conceptualize that. Or I'm sure there's like if some modern physicist or something at some point who could completely conceptualize that more as something else dealing with time. Like that's kind of where Jung was headed with mm -hmm. synchronicity, where he was talking about time having qualitative properties and like starting to have an intellectual justification of astrology that was almost purely that mm -hmm. um and and yes yeah, so we, have, we haven't defined that or nobody's ever come up with like a universal model for astrology we're kind of actually waiting for somebody to come up with one that fully encapsulates modern thinking not modern thinking but usually in different time periods like periodically every few hundred years somebody comes up with a model of it for astrology that incorporates whatever the current scientific paradigm is with some yeah. of the other philosophical and religious paradigms. And then that's like the model of astrology for a few centuries. Yeah. But yeah, I don't, we're, I don't, we're definitely not at that point right now. Yeah. We're a little bit due for that. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully. Yeah. Sure. We have to use, um, yeah, we have to use different model. There a model that makes sense for astrology doesn't necessarily make the same amount of sense for physics. And the physics model isn't very useful for doing it. You know, we're we're definitely at a time, and it's not just astrology and physics. There are lots of, um, yeah. We're definitely not. We're I, I would say we're at a, a a point in the timeline of paradigmatic disunity or fragmentation. But yeah, sure. some some uh, unity would be nice. So one of the other things you would list at one point as reservation was like potential ethical hazards. Like yeah, I, I have two that I'm concerned with. Okay. So one which pertains to all of magic mm -hmm. um, is that just because you can do it, just because it's magically possible doesn't mean that it is ethical. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, just because you can burn someone's, you can um, bring about circumstances via planetary magic where someone's house will burn down doesn't mean that it's okay to burn someone's house down. Sure. Right. It's um, a lot of, uh, a lot of people, there's been a lot, a lot of the, I would say, I don't even know if I would qualify it as thinking, but a lot of the talk uh, in the 20th century, uh, insofar as it pertains to the ethics of magic, puts magic in a totally different ethical category than mundane action. Mm -hmm. um, either, you know, like, oh, if you do it with magic, it's, um, you know, it's ethically worse. Um, you know, there's the this Wiccan rule of three thing that I think is not true. I think it's actually very useful to put exactly the same ethical parameters on action uh, on magic as you would on your normal life. If it's, if you think it's okay to go burn someone's house down 
like with gasoline and matches, mm-hmm. then you know it's a then we're if we're talking about magic, we're just talking about the tool. Like if you don't think it's okay to, you know, if you don't think it's okay to harm people, then it's not okay to harm people by magic, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, so there could be possible like unethical uses of magic, basically. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, there again, um, I would say that magic is um, uh, ethically neutral. Um, it's what you, you know. It's it's uh, magic is a a type of of power, and what you do with power is not inherent. You know, using power is not inherently ethical. Mm-hmm. Uh, it um, the <laughs> um, the most ethical things that you can do are the the thing you can do things with power that do great good uh, for a great number of people or great good for uh, individuals, um, and we could judge those as good. But you can also do things with power that are um, um, that are bad. Sure, and it's know? the same with astrology. I mean, there's ethical uses of astrology in ways that you can use it in positive ways, and there's also obviously like unethical or inappropriate uses of astrology. Yeah, yeah, and so just because you can doesn't mean you should, mm-hmm. right? And I would also say, yeah, uh, no, I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's just. Don't uh, it, magic doesn't have a different set of the eth- ethics. If you think that's wrong, you know, if you think that that's shady, underhanded, et cetera, et cetera, um, via magic or in normal life, then it is to accomplish the same thing by magic has the same ethical value. And one of the one I would say that magic is a little bit more of a, a test of character mm-hmm. because if you can accomplish things without being caught, right? Um, because the the mechanism of causation is mysterious, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you might be caught if you took that um, that can of gasoline and those matches. But if you could accomplish the same thing without having to go to the property, it uh, via magic it shows you that test of character, and you can see like, well, uh, you know, are you really an ethical person, or are you just afraid of being caught? Sure. Um, and I would. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, if something has that much power, it almost invites. Maybe abuses of power more than than you might think or than we might want. Yeah, and in so in cultures that um, regard magic as real, um, you know, people people are on the lookout for that. Um, in cultures that regard magic as real, there, you know, there uh, there are um, uh, cultural mores as well as you know repercussions or. Um, even legislation around magic, because if you regard something as being uh, potent as having power, um, then therefore there's a potential abuse of power. Mm-hmm. And so, in the West right now, there's an interesting situation where a lot of people don't think it's real, and that actually provides practitioners with the ability to get away with a lot um, if they're not ethical, mm-hmm. right? And so, and it's just a thing, you know. Yeah, one of the things that does occasionally come up and it's been more frequent in the past decade is very, very, like mostly astrologers are very open with sharing their birth charts for the most part. The only exception I ever find to that is occasionally I'll meet somebody that ends up having like Scorpio rising that doesn't like sharing their birth data for whatever privacy reasons. But the only other exception to that that I find is occasionally I'll run into somebody that doesn't want to share their birth chart and it turns out that it's for magical reasons because they're concerned that somebody could use their birth chart against them somehow in like a magical spell and I've occasionally come across that. Mhm. Is yeah. that that's a thing? 
um, it, it's that is a thing culturally. Um, and uh, I would say that you can use um, you can use birth data um, to very effectively target a person, and that is um, that is both positive and negative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you want um, if you want to if you uh, let's say that you have a friend who hasn't studied astrology and magic for twenty years um, and isn't going to be able to do the Jupiter ritual very well. Uh, that you, but you really want to help them, and you want, and you're going to do the work on their behalf, and you want to make sure that as much of that goes to them as possible, using their birth chart to, you know, to show the the blessing where to go, <laughs> um, is uh, is very effective. Mm-hmm. It is not the only means by which um, you know you can you can target magic at someone, but it is an effective means. Mm-hmm. What I'm not too paranoid about it okay because um you know if you uh if you spend some time surveying various magical methods there are like 20 other good targeting mechanisms um like even if you don't have my birth chart if you want to send something good or bad my way oh you've got pictures of me on the internet you have words that i've written you have a recording of my voice you have the letters of my name like they're there's tons and tons of other stuff. So I don't I don't get paranoid about it. And it's not because you can't use a chart to target people. It's just that like you've already got, if you're any good, you've already got plenty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it's just one of the things I hope, I don't know, because it's uh, obviously even just with astrology, there can be, there's discussions that come up about the appropriate versus the inappropriate use of if you know somebody's birth chart placements. And there's plenty of inappropriate ways that you can use astrology. I mean, sometimes just even in casual conversation, once you've been in the astrological community enough, like you know that with certain, unless you have a certain yeah. amount of familiarity with somebody, you don't just like invoke their birth chart placements. You're not like, oh yeah, that's just your moon in Libra. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> but occasionally it's like people, if you don't know those like social norms and rules, might um, transgress that and like not knowingly, accidentally. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Sure. Um, all right. Well, I think we covered most of the main. I got. I got, I've got one other ethical right. consideration, which is tied into the the like. Okay, so uh, which is tied in one of my earlier points, which is I've seen a lot of people. Uh, I've seen a lot of people who I know didn't know anything about astrological magic like six months or a year ago mm. suddenly selling products from astrological magic workings. Okay. And I think part of this is that my wife, uh, Caitlin Kopic, who runs Spirit and Sundry, has made it look easy. Mm. Um, and Kate, for a lot of people, seemed like she came out of nowhere, whereas Kate's been doing these projects with me for 12 years mm. and put her time in and has seen the mistakes. Um, but a lot of people have seen the market value of what if my my candles were magic? I could, you know, I could sell them for more or and on a legitimate level, like, wouldn't it be cool to like make, you know, make these candles that I'm already making like full of Jupiter magic? Mm-hmm. Um, and I see a lot of people um, who um, aren't, who actually haven't studied how to do astrological magic using bad elections. Mm-hmm. And so with a bad election, you have two negative possibilities. One is, eh, doesn't have much juice. Mm-hmm. It, you know, there's really not much magic to it. Which is okay. At least it's not harmful. Um, but like I said before, a lot of the other the I would say the bigger problem 
with a lot of elections is that they bring weird side effects in. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be to the, to the point of, like if you're just doing it in the day and hour um, and you haven't even looked at the configuration of the planet, like let's say, oh, it's the day and hour of Jupiter, but Jupiter at that day and hour is in the 12th and opposed by Mars in the 6th, um, then you're, you're actually creating something. It, the, the charge that that will have will actually create the opposite of the Jupiter effects that you want. Mm -hmm. And so it concerns me that people are selling the results of their magic without having put the time, putting the time in to um, uh, not just you know, not just do it right so that it's powerful, but um, with astrological magic, there's always the possibility of literally creating the opposite of what you intended to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that concerns me. And um, something that could turning creating something that could be harmful instead of helpful. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, like if so, for example, with a health example, creating something that's supposed to be helpful for health, but actually cause causes excessive dryness that facilitates dryness and inflammation because they didn't see that the indicator was configured to both Mars and Saturn. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so, and that's a, that's, that's a thing I think we're dealing with in astrology as well as people selling, well, people selling services, um, before they can, their, um, their practice is in a place where they can be of aid to others. Mm -hmm. And that was part of our discussion yesterday as well. You know, we can't say there, there's no simple, hard and fast rule, but, um, you know, we can't say, oh, once you're after your Saturn return, then you're good enough. Right. But like, you need to have put some time in and struggled with it and seen the mistakes that you can make mm -hmm. so that you don't make those mistakes when you're selling those services to a client, yeah. whether it's like uh, a talisman you made or whether it's uh, a, 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 a consultation you're offering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was the discussion we had at the end of the December forecast was just about because astrology is an un largely unregulated field and there's never a clear point where somebody tells you exactly when it's okay to start seeing clients that everybody starts at different points and that astrologers sometimes discuss some sort of universal way to come up with a litmus test for for when you can start becoming an official professional astrologer. But for us, um, Sometimes people put age forward, but age isn't really a good litmus test for that. But instead, it's more how long have you been studying the subject and how deeply have you been studying the subject in terms of that being one of the primary requirements for um, how good you are and if you're ready to start uh, applying that to other people's charts. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah, it's an issue with the popularization, the recent spike in popularity of these things. Um, and it's also a, a thing where you've got, you know, a generation um, reaching the, you've got millennials reaching maturity in a job market that's not very awesome. And it's like, well, what do I do for a living? There's a, a strong push to, uh, to um, professionalize because there, there aren't, there, uh, there are not enough other good possibilities. And yeah. that's weak. I'm sympathetic to that pressure. But um, there's still an, a, a responsibility to, you know, get to a certain level before you start selling um, your your skills to other people. Yeah, and that actually brings up a point, which is something I really don't like, and I think goes kind of bonkers in the Indian tradition is that um, the the remedial measures um, industry, like 
because uh, Indian astrology is so integrated into um, Hinduism and is so culturally acceptable, and because it's integrated into the religious doctrines as well as some of the medicine and some of the different forms of magic, uh, in Indian astrology it's commonly believed that you can do things to remediate or to change or alter your birth chart. And so there is a whole industry surrounding, um, you know, either buying or selling stones that are associated with certain planets mm -hmm. in order to emphasize those placements or de-emphasize them in your chart, or other types of things like that. And while there might be like constructive, ethical, conscientious people, there's certainly tons of um, not ethical or other types of ways that that can go wrong because it's just. Uh, a huge industry in as part of that yeah and the way i was taught and maybe something to look for mm -hmm. um if uh, if you really like the vedic approach and you want to you know you want consultations from that perspective um is uh anyway in the the way i was taught in the text we work with um there are always lower almost zero cost alternatives mm -hmm. um if you can afford a diamond for venus then great that might be a good alternative there are always uh, there are also semi precious stones, which you know a semi precious stone might run ten dollars for that. So you know for a stone on a ring, mm -hmm. and there will be there should be uh, mantra um, or other ritual practice alternatives, which cost you nothing except the time to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, it's not for me to set the standard as a whole, but I would. Um, I, I would say that there, there there should always be a lower cost alternative that's provided. Um, the answer should never be you have to spend five thousand dollars or bad things will happen to you. Yeah. If that is the way it's phrased, look for another practitioner. Yeah, because I do worry about that. Because in the very very occasional things where you do see even in the West news stories about um, somebody who's supposedly an astrologer but gets arrested for being fraudulent, it's like that's their thing is claiming that a person is cursed and that it's only if they pay like $20,000 to them that they can remove the curse or like something stupid like that. The um the the first psychic reading that I got in LA, mm -hmm. I went in and basically that's exactly the 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 scam that they tried to run on me. Okay. And I was like, "Okay, don't think better of psychics." <laughs> the, yeah. This person was, it was funny. They were like, I see you working with your hands in a couple years. Okay. And then there's a bad thing, very nebulous. And for $500, I can make that go away. And I was like, that's cool. Bye. Wow. Yeah. And see, it's for somebody like you, that's easier to go in and hear that and then just walk away. But there's so many people that are like impressionable or don't know any better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say, yeah. Be like, okay, that that diamond ring sounds good. What are the other um, What are the other ways that we can approach this? What are the low cost alternatives for approaching remediating? You know, this rough period. And yeah. if they have no answers, I think that's very suspicious. I mean, and then more broadly, I do wonder still philosophically as well as practically, like how far can you remediate some things? Like, are well, there some events in our lives that are going to be negative events that we experience as part of our fate that are, are outside of the scope of remediation. Like in the Indian tradition, when I learned under Dennis Harness at Kepler, uh, we read some books by like David Frawley where he talked about like different types of fate and different levels of mm -hmm. fate that you have or, or karma. Not, yeah, karma, sorry, not fate, but karma, which is 
sort of roughly equivalent in it, some when, ways. When it's truly fixed Carvo, then it, it functions identically to fate right. within the context of one life. Sure. So, there, But even then in that tradition, the Indian tradition, that there could be certain karmas or certain things in your fate that are not avoidable in this lifetime or that you can't mitigate or you can't like put off till the next lifetime or what have you, but that have to be experienced. Yeah, just because um just because there's um there's some things you can do, it doesn't mean like it doesn't mean that you get to rewrite the story. Sure. Uh, and that's part of um the technical um proficiency in Geodish is knowing how fixed is this thing and how what can I do and then what can I what can I expect? You know, there's some things that can be fully mitigated, but then there are a lot of things where it's like mm, I can take some of the edge off, mm. but um, you know, I shouldn't expect to not experience that. Like for for me, um, <laughs> uh, so one of the indicators is the whatever planet is the Atma Karaka, which is um, very bad translation soul indicator um, that has a more central role um, in your chart. Afflictions to the Atma Karaka represent, uh, I, I, the way that I was trained was, afflictions to the Atma Karaka represent suffering um, that is inevitable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, you can still do some stuff to improve it, but you're not going to be able to get around that pain. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have several afflictions to my Atma Karaka, and I have done remedial measures, which uh, I actually still do remedial measures to mellow that down. And I see a big difference when I do my practice and when I don't. But it's it it does it it doesn't negate it. Mm. It's working with something that's definitely there. Yeah, I mean, I guess, and that's where I wonder bringing up the question that I didn't articulate earlier, much earlier in this episode. But just sometimes, what is the value of attempting to or wishing you could change things versus what is the value of developing a sort of internal tranquility to to be okay with whatever must be. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. I would say so. In my experience of some of the um, remedial prescriptions that are given in uh, Geotish, is that some of the practices actually have as a primary benefit facilitating um, the state of mind where they can be accepted with tranquility. Mm -hmm. Um, so, for example, I have a bunch of Saturn uh, afflictions from Saturn to both my Sun and Moon, um, and so I do uh, I do a, a a a Kali practice, which Kali works on Saturn um, most nights or every night. Um, and what I find is that 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 has made managing the suffering from the Saturn Moon thing um, much much better. It, it's made me able to deal with that um in a what is what's the word in a tranquil matter mm -hmm. it's facilitated that tranquility um and so you know to a certain degree i think some of these are actually some of them will have external effects but then some of them are um are, are simply facilitating that tranquility which is a a goal in the stoic tradition as well yeah um to develop it like a muscle inside of you and i guess that's the question is how much there's probably some healthy balance here, like with all things in uh, developing um, the ability to accept things that you have to accept, but also still um, not becoming completely passive in your life and trying to continue to push for change and make change um, where you can to whatever extent that you can in ways that's that are constructive in your life. Yeah, there's um, there's a concept in um, Chinese medicine which I stumbled across a long time ago and always stuck with me. 
where there's uh, yin will and yang will, and that both are valid. And yin will is the ability to accept things, mm. right? And that, that that's seen as like a, you know, a, a capacity that can be trained and developed and is highly desirable um, because it allows you to have a better experience of life. Mm. And then yang will is what we think of as will, where you're going out and making stuff happen mm. and that both are important. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. It seems like a muscle, the more passive form that you still have to develop, uh, that that's not something that's easier, comes easily to everybody immediately. Right. And yeah, the Stoics weren't just like sit around and say, you know, be like, yeah, that's fine. Like there's practice, there's reading, there's thinking to yeah. develop the, the capacity of the mind to accept what must be accepted or to accept what cannot be changed. Yeah, well, and I think that was the thing in astrology is that a lot of the Stoic philosophers don't talk about astrology because they have just developed that skill anyways on their own, and they don't need anything like astrology in order to accept future events. Because if you are the like enlightened Stoic sage, you've already met that point no matter what, and you don't need foreknowledge to do that to right, develop you're ready that skill. For whatever arises. Yeah, but then for normal people that broadly speaking like want to be able to do that, but you know, can't yet or aren't fully there in terms of their level of philosophical enlightenment, astrology would act as that sort of crutch to help get them there. Well, and so there's the what makes sense once you're a sage, but how do you get to sagehood? Yeah. Right. Or if you're not at sagehood, but instead you're just, uh, you know, somebody that works their normal job, whatever their job is, like nine to five job every day. And yeah, one just wants to know what's coming up around the corner. Uh, yeah, I think that was it in the ancient world. We have a different set of problems, obviously, today, and there's different solutions. But I like that idea of finding balance between those two, and that being a a struggle or a pull where where yeah, finding some sort of balance or equilibrium would be uh, ideal. Yeah, and you know, just to be clear, um, I think that development of yin will or those uh, tranquility muscles that's um, that's extremely important and having access to an effective remediation tradition or being excellent at astrological magic does not remove the necessity and value of learning how to accept things. Because mm -hmm. even if you can change way more, even if you have way more power than you ever dreamed you could, there's still a lot that you can't control. Yeah. I mean, I, I worry about people it's the same thing in the modern psychological tradition where Lisa and I have talked about this a lot on the podcast about the emphasis on free will being so much that sometimes it acts and, and humanism being so much that it accidentally can make a person feel bad about their chart if their life doesn't live up to that because you give mm. them a feeling of inadequacy like if only they had done this differently then they could have like made the most out of those placements and get the positive delineation that the person is saying instead of the more mediocre or even negative situation yeah. that they ended up with. I worry about some people thinking that sometimes about um, things that might have happened in their life or their fate, like that there was a major event and if only they had done something proactively or done such and such if ritual if that they could have. If only you thought positively. <laughs> yeah. When it's not always like that, there's some major things in a person's life or a confluence of events that, that you might not be able to fully remove or get rid of. Yeah. Well, and even within, um, so just to stick within the Vedic framework that I, uh, I w I've been educated in, you show um, um, the, usually it's Jupiter, 
Um, but it is the aspect of a benefic that has certain power that shows that there will be access to a tradition, um, whether it's a medical tradition or a magical tradition, that has the fix for that problem. Yeah, yeah. right. Right. Um, and, you know, and uh, just as a side note, a lot of the, <clears throat> like if we're looking at uh, a mantra practice that is prescribed um, when a person has a physical sickness, a lot of times it, the expected goal isn't that the medical condition and what happens isn't that the medical condition disappears. It's that you do that practice for you know a couple of weeks or 40 days or whatever, and you end up finding the right doctor. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's not just this control thing where you're like, no more sickness, put the absurd wealth over here, all the happiness. Like it's not, it's none of the traditions that are actually engaged in sort of magical dialogue uh, or ritual dialogue with a chart um, claim that you just, you know, you just wipe away the birth chart and put all the fortune there. Yeah. And I mean, there's some indications like that in some of the Hellenistic delineation material of indications for extreme, like let's say sickness, but then a mitigation that indicates like finding help or finding the doctor at the appropriate time in order to heal that issue in your life or what have you. Yeah. Um, and the final thing is just the point that just came up was fate often being conceptualized in a negative sense, but fate is not always negative. It can also be, it can not just be a negative event like a loss of somebody or the death of somebody in your life, but it can also be the an extremely positive event or the most positive event in your life, like meeting your marriage partner or something like that, and then mm -hmm. falling in love and that being something that also might be inescapable in a way. But the, having the question of would you want to like use your free will to fuck up your own fate, right? If you really could, and if you Some want to get powerful rid of sorcery would be required, but you could do it. You think so? <laughs> I don't think uh, I don't know if many people have tried, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, that's really important, right? And that's and that's so we were talking about the the fixed or druva karma, which functions identically to fate. That is used for all positive configurations as well as all negative configurations. You're mm -hmm. like, oh no, there's no like this person can't change being born rich, mm, right? right? Or they can't change the fact that they're they have absurdly good fortune professionally. Mm -hmm. um, like it's like, oh, one, two, three, check the D nine, check the D ten. Yeah, good luck trying to fail, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, I mean, and and that that happens. That's a thing. So it's an important other part of the fate thing. Because usually, fate get the fate get discussion usually gets contextualized within the context of can I escape bad things and how oppressive or negative that sounds. If you tell somebody that something negative in their life is something that you can't necessarily get out of or that they'll continually have to deal with, but there's the other side of that coin is there are also the positive things yeah. of you will always you know. Um, benefics in the 11th like get a leg up by your friends or, or friendship will often come to benefit you in unique ways that are not true of other people in their mm -hmm. lives or yeah. what have you what i think that uh, uh the way people use language i think when they're talking about that they say destiny right yeah destiny has a more positive like ring to it than fate yeah um even though we're, we're we are literally just talking about um <laughs> storylines that uh, seem to that we discover rather than write. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that kind of brings us to the end of this discussion. I don't know what else to touch on. I don't think there's anything else that we had written down that we wanted to touch on. Our main topic was just 
reservations surrounding, especially the primarily that I had surrounding the revival of astrological magic in modern times and not really knowing where that's going and not really knowing how I'm going to interface with it personally, but observing it from the sidelines to a certain extent and talking about where I'm at with this at the present point in time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's, we covered, we covered quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess takeaways, like if you think it's real, then treat it with the respect of something that's mm -hmm. real. Like, you know, it's not anything you want it to be just like astrology isn't anything you want it to be. Sure. Um, approach it with respect and care. And if you want to, um, if you want to get good at it, then put the time in. Yeah. And also part of it was because I want to be able to continue to talk about it without it always being a full-on endorsement, but something that I think is interesting from an intellectual standpoint is clearly part of the tradition. So like I want to do there's an episode I've been wanting to do at some point on the Picatrix itself, even though you mm -hmm. and I have like referred to it or done side discussions. I've been talking to Christopher Warnock about doing an episode just focusing on some of the magical elections in the Picatrix and what those actually look like from an astrological standpoint and what types of electional astrology they're applying and what they're trying to accomplish and wanting to be able to have that discussion but first having this one as a precursor to that yeah and i can't think of a better person to have that discussion with than uh mr warnock yeah well and he, he was definitely because he was the starting point he was the lone figure for a long time in like the early and mid 2000s who who was doing astrological yeah he magic. was holding he was holding the torch when nobody else was right um, and now there's been this full revival, um, but he still holds that sort of interesting place in terms of all that. Yeah, he has. Yeah, and yes, when the the story of uh, the reintegration of um, the astrological magic tradition into the astrological discourse, when that story is told, um, he he will have a very important role in that story. Sure. Uh, well, people can go back and listen to one of my early episodes of the Astrology Podcast, just because in terms of recognizing his role in that, in like 2012, 2013, as I had Christopher Warnock on in like episode 16 or something. Oh, wow. And we did a discussion um, really early on about astrological magic, because I saw that as part of the tradition that I wanted to recognize. And even if it was like this minor thing that not a lot of people were doing at that point in time. Yeah, the, the weird kid corner, yeah, which yeah. it was then. Which it definitely was circa 2012, 2013. But it's interesting now that things have changed and having him back on the show next month will be interesting if, given that new context. I would love to hear his thoughts on the um, uh, on the recent popularization of the astrological magic. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely ask him and hopefully that's something we can get into. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me for this today. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, uh, there's nobody else I would have wanted to have this conversation with, so I'm glad we, we got to have it. Yeah, me too. I'm glad we had this. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, thanks to the patrons who supported us. Please give us a like and subscribe and all that other jazz, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks to the patrons and sponsors who helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through a page on patreon.com, including patrons Christine Stone and Nate Craddock as well as the AstroGold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs at honeycomb.co, and also the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting an astrology conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. And you can find out more information about that at esar2020.org. 
and the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening in Seattle May 21st through 25th, 2020. And you can find out more information about that at norwac.net. For more information about how to sign up to become a patron of the podcast, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.